All right. Uh, here's the Apex Vaulting Podcast. We're on uh, episode 20. Um, we've got Joe Oliveri with us. Um, if you don't know, Joe started a new Instagram account. It's a fitness account, SwoleBro391. Yes? Yeah, couldn't. Uh, I didn't want to change the moniker too much. Everyone knows yeah. the Joe Bro life, so. Right. So why now change we, the numbers? Exactly. And yeah, 391, that's because that's your lifetime best in pole vault, right? 391? <laughs> <laughs> might, might as well be. <laughs> um, no, right. So uh, just for those of you not good with metric, 391 would be uh, about 1210. Something like that, yeah. Uh, Joe's PR is actually 11. <laughs> no. With the, what, what's, 14 your, what's, your, what's your lifetime best? Uh, fifteen seven four seven four meters seventy five. Yeah, yeah. Not that I I remember. Oh, come on, it's not bad. I mean, look, I I think again, and we've talked about it on previous podcasts. I think some people what they consider good or bad. It's it's kind of relative. Well, right. It depends. You know, like who's squeezing the most out of their body. You know what I mean? Like I think that's what people don't think about. And sure, people like to bring up Renault Lavillani, for example, who, you know, he's a small guy. What is he like five eight, five nine, hundred and fifty pounds, hundred and forty pounds. Yeah. And he's like getting a he's getting a twenty foot jump out of that body, but he's also super explosive, right? Stuck. If you're the average five eight guy, hundred and fifty pounds and you're kinda like slow and sluggish, yeah. You have a real tough time jumping anything, never mind twenty feet. Yeah, I think my my, my old coach at Lynchburg College was quoted as saying I'd be lucky to break 12 seconds in the 100 if I had a tailwind. So Yeah, yeah. And then <laughs> and then one of your other coaches, uh, Jesse Bauman, who's now the head coach of Ravian, I remember he, he made the funniest comment about you. I, I was going to drop off polls. Um, for those of you that know, don't know, uh, Jesse tends to drive to nationals from Pennsylvania, no matter where nationals is in Division Three. Mm-hmm. And me and Jesse are, are friendly. So uh, I usually drop off the Rampo polls, Rampo College polls at Moravian to have him drive them to the meet. Um, thank you, Jesse. I super appreciate it. And the one day I mentioned you when I went to drop off the polls there and we're chatting and catching up and he's like, oh my goodness, Bronco, do you know what we used to call Joe when he was at Lynchburg? I said, what? And at the time your PR was 15.5. So he's like, we always just say, Joe is the world's best 15.5 vaulter. World's best. Nobody jumping 15.5 is better than Joe. He's the best. No, you know what? I proudly <laughs> embrace that moniker. I'm totally fine with that. Yeah, I don't know if you meant it as a compliment, but I, I can kind of see that as a compliment. Definitely you know? not a compliment, but I, I, I greatly appreciate it. I Look, I tend to tell people I, I think I'm the world's best 135-pound bencher. Yeah. I really like my technique is super clean at 135. Yeah, you just, you just don't <laughs> got the pecs, man. <laughs> well, you know. Um, but – you know, a lot of things going on in the pole vault world. We're getting ready for indoor track. I think things are starting to heat up. And I'm pretty sure everybody's got that antsy kind of cabin fever. You know, we're all like kind of waiting yeah. for that first meet, which is only a couple weeks away for college programs yeah. and high school programs. Mid-November, man. I'm waiting for that, that first big mark. That, you know that first big mark of the year? Where I think The one where everyone's like, oh, oh, oh that guy looks good. Mon- Yo, I you think know. I, we have, I think, Mondo jumping 19 feet. That was, I think, last year's first big mark. Also, Kendricks, I think, jumped 87 or 83 is first well, big Well, no, I think, okay, Mondo's first big mark was, like, I think, 18-8. And then everybody was like, oh, when do you think he could jump 19? So, yeah, and yeah, And yeah. it was like, oh, now he did that. Yeah. Now what are we talking about next? So, yeah, it, it'll, it'll be interesting. And, and a lot of things coming up, but... There's a lot of topics I wanted to kind of bring up, and and we've been talking a lot the past couple of days, and actually for the last half hour, um, you know, Joe. Just full disclosure, Joe wasn't sure if he wanted to do the podcast tonight. He said he was a little tired. 
Yeah, a little sleepy. Um, but I think our conversation woke him up a little bit, and now now we're kind of ready to go. So one of the things I wanted to talk about and bring up is, look, I think sometimes the pole vault community, we view pole vault the way like a wine connoisseur views wine or like one of those beer connoisseurs view IPAs, you know? Like we're like, oh, well, you know, I really prefer a red wine over a white wine or I like the bitterness and hoppiness of an IPA. And that's cool, right? Like with food, drinks, beverages, stuff like that. You can have personal preferences, right? Yeah. But in the pole vault, we are in an athletic event where we all have the same desired outcome. We want to jump as high as humanly possible. And I kind of feel like this is where we need to get away from preferences and really talk about what is technically desirable? What is the industry standard? And that's something I, I, I wanted to talk about with you tonight. Is like, you know, what, what are some industry standards? You know, I, it's something that maybe we could all agree upon that this is favorable. And if you're not doing this, you need to fix this, you know? Yeah, that's definitely a tough thing to quantify, right? Because we've seen so many different styles of pole vault jump six meters. Say, well, well, we'll stick right now with six meters being the barrier. Forgetting that, I, I firmly believe a human is capable of jumping 21 plus feet. I, but, yeah, I but, mean, I think Sergey Bupka definitely showed that kind of hip height. Oh, yeah, know? yeah. I mean, he, he what was that? What, you used this quote a lot. What did Bupka say about six meters? Like, yeah, six, six meters was good in the 80s. Yeah, this, this, yeah, 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 yeah. 30 years later now. Right, but, right. But, I, but that, that aside, using the six meter mark as a barrier, we've seen what, 20, 21 men now over six meters or 20? Oh, gosh, man. I don't, I, I don't, I don't even know. I think, I think we're well past that. I thought. I felt like a couple of years ago we were at 24 or something like that, yeah, and we've had, oh, man. we'd have some sense. Like even last year alone, what Peter Lisek was a new guy that jumped six meters. Sam jumped six meters for the first uh, time. The, the Brazilian, uh, the, the, well, right. So the, the year before, before that, yeah, the Silva, yeah. and then Sean Barber as well. Yeah we, yeah, we had three three new entries in the last, I think, calendar year, right? Or right, year and right. a half. Um, but using using that as a benchmark, we've seen so many guys jump that with very different techniques that I think it is hard to quantify. Okay, you know, the swing's better than the tuck and shoot or, you know, taking off out is better than taking off uh, under, under or on. And and uh, so that that's something that I think so, someone has to come along and figure out a way to, to sort of figure out, all right, this person swung and they put this many Newtons into the jump versus this guy that tucked, you know, he actually brought out force and- from... And so, I, look, you bring up some interesting points. And I'm not saying that, you know, I think the science is invaluable. I think, like, for example, what Dr. Peter, Peter McGinnis has done, which, look, every year he goes to the championship meets, at least in America, and he measures the meters per second at mm-hmm. takeoff. That's invaluable. Because awesome. we literally get to see, like, what speeds are required to jump certain heights. And I always remember the story where, where Dr. Peter McGinnis talks about uh, going up to Jeff Hartwig and telling him, like, look, like, that's fine. I'm sure you can get more technical, but your speed is not fast enough to jump higher. And that kind of pushed Jeff to train. I mean, I've heard Jeff talk about it, Jeff Hartwig say that pushed him to train harder and get faster on the runway. And that's when he started jumping six meters. I really you know? wonder Jeff, Jeff's a guy just hearing other stories about him. I really kind of wonder what his lifting numbers were like in his, in his prime. Yeah. I mean, I, I look, I wonder a lot about the, the training aspect of it because that's the other thing too. So we have such a technical event and we have so many people with varying opinions on technique. Mm. And then on top of it, the training is just like throw it out the window. 
You yeah. you have all the extremes. I mean, you have a guy like Brad Walker who in his heyday was preaching the weight room. Yeah. His, his prime advice, I remember that one video, I don't know if it was by Flow Track or Spike Magazine or whatever, but they asked him, was like, what's your best advice for, to a young pole vaulter? And he said, listen, pole vaulting is fun, it's great, but we jump too much, get in that weight room, make yourself a better athlete. And so it's like, there you have a guy where it's like pushing the weight training, pushing the strength and conditioning to, you know, get yourself better. And then we have the opposite extreme where there's people that literally never touch weights, do body weight stuff and do gymnastics. And so it's like there, we have so, so much stuff that's in opposition. So it's like, if you're a new vaulter, mm. if you're, if you're new to coaching, even how do you know who to listen to? It's you know, tough. that, that's an interesting and, question. And I, I would even say back in the day, I was one of those people mm-hmm. that was like, listen, weight room, Forget about that. Go on the high bar. Go on the high bar. Do some bupkas. Do some swing ups. Do some stuff like right. that. Do some pull ups. Do some muscle up. Body weight stuff. You know, calisthenics. I never used to be. Maybe this was because I personally didn't have the experience in the weight room. I wasn't. I was in the weight room. Probably wasn't lifting properly. Probably wasn't doing right stuff. So I wasn't seeing those improvements. I wasn't. You know, my quads were. I had little toothpicks, man. Mostly through college. Yeah. But like now, hindsight. I, I look back and I'm like, man, I really wish I would have had a proper strength program, strength, uh, proper strength and conditioning program. I would have been stronger. That would have made me faster. Or maybe like if I had just listened to Bronco. Oh man, I started. <laughs> with, I was lifting. I would say I would. I would reasonably say the first really solid strength and conditioning program I had was uh, not to discredit the, the the guys at Lynchburg. They, I think they were great. I just don't think they were there to push me. The first time I was really pushed in the weight room. Uh, was the strength and conditioning coach at Samford College. Yeah, and, and I was actually lucky enough this summer to be at Samford and, yeah. and meet Coach Rawlings. Um, you know, aw- he does an awesome job. I was actually messaging him yesterday on, on Instagram, and we can talk about that later. But, yeah, I mean, great strength and conditioning program there. They're doing some good stuff. Yeah. Um, what, what I was going to say, too, as I just – before people, I'm sure, jump on your Instagram or even look at some of the stuff that I personally do, mm-hmm. just to be clear, Joe is not pole vaulting right now. Joe's just kind of working <laughs> out. Retired. He's got some other goals physically. And me personally as well, like I don't really have time to pole vault. I barely have enough time uh, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. I try to fit an hour, hour and a half workout um, in between coaching sessions. Um, I'm coaching on average – eight plus hours a day for six days a week. Um, and then usually that seventh day, um, I'm going this fall. I've been at conferences, seminars during the season. I'm going to track meets, but so it's like, it's tough enough for me to just get workouts, stay in shape. Um, we have different fitness goals. Hmm. So I don't want anybody to like look at what Joe's doing right now or look at what I'm personally doing right now and be like, Oh, that's what I should be doing as a pole vaulter. And vice versa, anybody out there who's like, well, I think they, they don't look like pole vaulters. Well, we're not really training for that right yeah, now. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. I, I would say if, if you do head over to my Instagram, uh, Swole Ball 391 uh, definitely know that I'm doing a lot of hypertrophy stuff, which is for muscle growth and size increase because I'm a little tiny person, tiny little boy. Yeah. Bronco's a man. Uh, <laughs> definitely not the stuff that I recommend for doing if you, if you want to be a pole vaulter. However... Uh, definitely head over to the Real Apex Bolting po- uh, Instagram, Instagram account. They do have a lot of very good strength building exercises. Right, and and the thing is, like now, if you look at what my my athletes are doing who are pole vaulting, 
I mean, look, we're str- we're stressing, you know, max effort lifting. I mean, we do hypertrophy stages. Obviously, we have a lot of young kids who are high school kids. They need to strengthen their whole body. Um, it, it's not going to hurt to add on a little bit of muscle mass in the beginning. But like just recently, I posted a video, and dude, I'm waiting for tomorrow. I think she could outdo herself. But Amanda Katz, she's a high school senior. Uh, she weighs 115 pounds. She uh, sumo deadlifted 260 for four. Real smooth, real That's easy. Great. I'm really like. Knock on wood. I don't want to jinx her, but like, I think she can hit 300 tomorrow. We're going to do singles tomorrow. I think she's going to hit 300, which would blast her summer PR by 30 pounds. So, so what do you say to the people, <clears throat> Ron Bronco, that say, you know, some deadlift, perfect example. I can't even begin to explain the amount of misinformation that is out there regarding exercise like the squat and the deadlift. Well, t- tell, tell them that. You texted me the other day. You heard oh, somebody say something in the yo. locker room about deadlifts. What did, I, what did that guy say? So I was at LA Fitness uh, weight room or, or work, uh, gym, and I, that's where I do my regular workouts most of the time. And I'm in there. I'm finishing up. I'm you know washing up and taking my protein. I'm, I'm, I'm listening to this conversation going on between, I would say, these kids maybe, maybe 17, 18. Like they probably drove themselves. So I'm going to say seniors high school. And they're talking about deadlift. I actually coincidentally just finished my deadlifting workout. And they're talking about, oh, man, you know. So I think, I think one of the kids said, you know, I, I want to get bigger. I want to get stronger. I got to deadlift. His friend goes, no, man, don't deadlift. I don't deadlift. It, it messes with your shins. First off, messes with your shins, man. What? Right. That's like that's like playing man, man. It's going to hurt my fingers. It's ridiculous. Right, right. Like, it's it's kind of like if, if a pole vaulter was like, dude, I keep getting this bruise yeah. on my bottom arm yeah. when I get inverted. The pole well, hits well, no, it. I would, so I'm going to not pole vault because I don't want to get a bruise on I my forearm. I don't even think that's a good example because I feel like that bruise actually happens. I've never deadlifted. Now, let, let me tell you, ladies All and gentlemen, right. oh. I'm a 450-pound deadlifter, which is not – that's not crazy. But I did that like 155, 156 right. pounds. Okay. I've never had shin pains from deadlifting Okay, so – um, let me just chime in there. I understand that. You definitely can can do some serious deadlifting uh, without kind of hurting your shins. But I think depending on the bar you're using and depending on how tight you're keeping that bar against your skin, I mean, I've ripped my shins open. I've bled okay. during, during yeah, deadlift. All right. But the thing is, like like I'm saying, like yes, in pole vault, like, people will have their, their bottom arm bruised okay. from getting inverted – but that's not a reason not to pole vault, you know. Yeah. Okay. So there's that's and that's just comical. I think that's just really funny. Like that's oh, not a reason why not to to deadlift. But I know some people are worried that you can injure your back deadlifting, which is certainly possible. But if done properly and monitored by a coach, one, not only you're not going to hurt your back, you're going to strengthen your back, and more importantly, you're going to strengthen your hamstring and glutes. And guys, your hamstring and glutes are responsible for so much of your runway speed and your jumping ability. And if you don't think that's going to make you better. Hey man, I, I, I don't know, but like you tell me a better way to strengthen the glutes and the hamstrings, you know? Right. So, okay. So, okay. This is, I think a good example. As many people as there are saying deadlifting is, is dangerous for your knees, your shins, your back or whatever it might, might be. How come there aren't the same people saying about certain pole vault techniques? I feel like, I feel like in this community, in the, 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 the pole vault community, which I think mm-hmm. is, is honestly relatively small, you have so many people saying, oh, there's a million different ways to skin a cat. You know, you could you could tuck a shoe, you could swing. How come? I, and I know every, almost every pole vaulter has seen that one guy get rejected back on the runway, break something, hurt something, get you know thrown off the pit, whatever, whatever, what have you. Uh, how come we don't look at the pole vault that critically and say, oh man, oh guys taking off a foot under, that's not good. That's going to lead to injury. Because I know I've said that before about certain right. people, and. 
people look at that as, as a very kind of mean thing to say about a pole vault. Right. T- and, and so, okay. And again, and, and Joe's been on the podcast before and we've talked about maybe sometimes the, the right way or wrong way to comment on someone's video. Um, <laughs> but I, I think what you're getting at is, is, look, you're bringing up interesting points. In the lifting or strength and conditioning world, um, there's definitely acceptable ways of getting things done and unacceptable ways. Mm. You, you know, certainly if you're rounding your back while deadlifting, Oof. that's a no-no. Like, that's a that's a real easy way to hurt your back, you know? You have to be arched on the bottom, hold a tight position, tighten your lats, brace your diaphragm, and pull from the ground with your glutes. Well, same thing in the pole vault. Like you said, I look, obviously some people have jumped very high with an under takeoff. I think that's also a reflection, and this kind of goes deeper, that's a reflection of them not having proper jumping mechanics. Yeah. So they have to take off under. So that means somewhere along the way, no one taught that person to actually jump up, right? Nobody taught them about a penultimate, a long short at the end. So that's a bigger issue. But you can't tell me that taking off under isn't bad for your body. I mean, you're you're getting ripped off the ground. Your, Your back is getting stretched out. Your shoulders are getting more tension put on them. Uh, you know, it's just not a good idea. Can you do it? Sure. I mean, I remember listening to a podcast with Jim Wendler, mm-hmm. who has the famous five three one system in powerlifting, and he was talking about he saw a guy who, uh, you know, was at a powerlifting meet. This guy's capable of eight hundred pound plus squats, so obviously a strong guy, obviously successful Stud. in the powerlifting world. But on his way up, he'd completely drop his chest. It'd almost become a good morning exercise. Mm. But the guy's back was so strong that he could stand back up and complete the lift. Awesome. But obviously, if he learned how to do it the right way, he probably would have squatted more. And you know what's scary is that I see the parallel there. How many people, like in the pole world, how many people have seen that and said, oh, that guy's doing 800 pounds like that. That has to be, there's some good stuff. This has no, to be the way. No, right. And in the powerlifting world, everybody knows like, hey, listen, yeah. respect. That guy's strong. Yeah. But... You probably don't want to. You probably don't want to do it that way. Oh yeah, people could swallow their pride in the powerlifting world, and I see that a lot. I see I see much more civil conversation among the powerlifters. Where in the pole vault community, it's like you say, like, man, that guy took off foot under. So whoa, 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 don't let let's not talk bad about this guy. He just jumped seventeen feet. All right, I'll never forget. Uh, who's the? I think it was. I think it was Frenchman. Uh, I, I'm sorry if I botched his name. Demille Dosevi. He mm. would actually take, and I think he jumped. I think he jumped five seventy or five seventy one. Um. Definitely a high jump. The guy, the guy was lightning fast. His second to last step would be on the ground when his pole tip struck the back oh. of the box. Talk about under. But he was so quick and so explosive that he got away with it. Right, now, people right, see that. Right. People say, okay, you know, taking off under is okay. He jumped, you know, five, almost 580. But it's like, yo, could you imagine what a guy with that much speed could do? If he got his step well, on. Well, he, here's the thing that I find crazy too. So just today, right, um, I got a phone call last week. Uh, got a new athlete to come in. He goes to a local college in the Northeast. He's from Vietnam. He has scored over 6,000 points in the decathlon. Wow. And his PR in the pole vault is 11. <laughs> so I think that says enough already, right, how good this kid is. Um, but... And in Vietnam, they really have some poor coaching. The national record there, I think he was telling me, was like something like 14.9, maybe 15. You know what I mean? It's like it's not very high for men. So there's not a lot of good pole vaulting there. But that being said, it's like, oh, my goodness. Like when he showed me the video of his jump in Vietnam, it's like 
was like, wow, I've seen a lot of that here in America. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, we're not so far away from that, you know? And like you said, it's like, yeah, some people can get away with a lot of stuff because they're such great athletes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, to- Toby Stevenson, I, I seem to remember hearing him running something like a 10-6 or faster in the 100. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, you're talking about incredible speed, you know? Um, so even if something is wrong, he's still going to get a good jump out of it, you know? Um, it, it's just weird. And, and like, look, even saying the jump up, right? I remember when I first started coaching and I might have mentioned this in a prior podcast, I printed out all this stuff from the internet that I would find. And I would, I would go to like Kinko's and print out like binders. I would literally make my own books. Mm. And I remember finding one thing on the internet where they said, don't teach kids how to jump up at takeoff. It's very complicated and they can grip certain grips without jumping, just running into it. Who said that? And then I don't remember. You don't remember? You don't want to name call? You don't remember? I don't remember. All right. But later, but later in their career, when they get to that point, then teach them how to jump up. And I feel like that's the worst advice ever. I, from day one, teach kids how to run tall, how to jump up, and how to plant the pole. Those are really, really important skills, right? So it's like I teach them that, you know, to run, you got to have front side mechanics. You don't want to overstride. For jumping, I tell them about the penultimate, long, short, jump before the pole tip hits the box. You know, these are goals. I'm not saying you're going to do it. And then I I teach them how to plant the pole. Because the thing is, if you get a kid who's all of a sudden, let's say a high school boy, you get them all the way up to 13, 13, 6, heck, maybe even 15 feet. And now you're like, hey, I got to teach you how to jump up now. That's a fundamental change that's going to be really difficult to change. I mean, we were just watching one of your 15-foot jumps from Lynchburg, right? Yeah. And it was like you could see the flat takeoff and you could kind of think back now in retrospect why it was so difficult for you to wrap your head around how to jump up because you had how many thousands of jumps of just running into it. It was, of course, going to be it's, something very It's foreign. hard to change. It's, you know, it's something I've always said or not I say always said. Something I've said in, in recent years, maybe the last three, four years, where how many really good high school athletes go to college and they fall apart. Now, you definitely have those guys that go to college. And whether or not whether or not they work like Mondo's going to be at LSU this this come or next year, he's going to be working with his dad. Yeah, and that, you know what? He's I think he's gonna, that's good because that's it's great. the same system. He's exactly. going to keep growing. But how many of these really really good high school athletes that jump you know sixteen even sixteen six seventeen feet seventeen six which is a crazy bar in high school that go to college and they fall to pieces and most of the time it's because you have you're implementing these huge changes and I feel like that is something that will happen to an athlete. You have this kid that doesn't jump up well takeoff, and you kind of just, all right, I'll just, you know, we'll just make that work. Oh, okay, now he's jumping 14. Let's get him jump up a takeoff. That athlete, nine times out of ten, is going to fall apart. Well, or, or they're, look, you're going to have to do a really good job of convincing that athlete that they're going to have to take a step back mm. to eventually take maybe five steps forward, you know. But can you convince that kid? I don't know. That's going to be tough. Also, then, then you, you maybe you lose interest, you get frustrated, you stop. Right. It's a slippery slope, to say the least. Yeah, well, and look, this is something that I talk about a lot at the club. And, you know, for those of you that don't know, I'm a huge Gary Vaynerchuk fan, Gary V. Um, he always talks about think long term. And I always try to get my athletes to think long term. I mean, we're always looking for success today, right now, but always in the bigger scope of what's the best for the long term. So we want to win today. That's going to really help us down the road. It, it, we're not going to take that shortcut. And like I was even talking to an athlete today where um, they they have a really good freshman that came in. Um, the athlete's really good. 
Um, almost 13 foot PR for a female okay. coming into freshman in college. That's great. The girl, the girl, no height at like 10 feet or something like that from a five. Not great. Yeah. And so it's like, the thing is like, we don't understand that there's, this is where like now going back to the standards, right? Let's talk about the industry standard, right? Like all these other businesses, industries, sports have an industry standard. Like for example, if you are a football coach and you are still running the wing T offense, I'm really sorry. You're done. That's like outdated. We're talking about like 60s. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like even Bart Starr in the 60s on the Green Bay Packers was not running a wing T offense. You know, it's like they've moved past that, right? Go ahead, chime in. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, if you're not running that annexation of Puerto Rico, you're just <laughs> you're you're out of it. That's the that's the play. Yeah, yeah. What movie was that from again? Was that Little Giants? Little Giants. Little Giants. Rick yeah, it was great. Um. Yeah, so I mean, like that's the thing. It's like you got you got to move on. There's new industry standards, you, you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's funny. Like, think about even boxing, right? The traditional stance for boxing, it used to like if you've ever seen the Notre Dame mascot, the Irish, mm-hmm. holding his knuckles up like that, fist like cups. yeah, well, fist cups. That's how you used to box. Like, I'm sorry, if you step in the ring today like that, you're going to lose. You know, that's how my so, grandfather used to do it. Man. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, let's talk about industry standards. Like, I just look. I feel like there's certain uh, grips that a, a vaulter should be able to accomplish. There's certain efficiency they should be able to accomplish. And I've talked about it in the past on the on the podcast. Something that's already laid out for you. The paperwork's done, people. DJ's mid chart. Yeah. DJ's mid chart has the grip, the mid, and and the bar that you should clear. Which, if you do the math, you can figure out the push. You know what I mean? And it, listen, it's not crazy. I, I'm pretty sure. Oh man, I almost. I can't remember. Um, I, I know I have it on the. On the laptop. What are you looking for? Let me, let me help you. D, uh, no, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna pull it up right now. I'm gonna pull the mark chart. Yeah, I noticed that just while since you're looking at while you're looking it up, I like to bring up. I know uh, Earl Bell uses. Actually, now I don't remember. Does he he uses a two left mid or a four left mid? I think two or three. Two I, or three. Then I think it's a two left mid, and I think Kyle Ellis, uh, who was a, the polo coach at Eastern Illinois, he I believe also uses. Uh, I believe a two left. I think he came up with his own mid mark. Right. And, and I think, look, I, to me, that's fine. I think those are like examples of industry standards. You don't have to necessarily follow this specific one. Uh, but just looking at DJ's chart, right? So, uh, I think we go to a zero push once we're at, if you're gripping 11, five, he says you should grip 10, no, 11. Oh, if you're gripping 11.8, you should jump 11, right? So when you subtract the 8 inches in the box, right? It's a zero push. That's a zero push when you uh, – 11.8 to 11 inches. That And look, guys, I mean I've had kids – like I had a girl last year grip 11.3, jump 11.6. So she's beating DJ's chart. You know what I mean? So this is a chart that I think is very, very manageable. Like you can hit these marks. This is not like you don't have to be an Olympian to do no. this. No, and even we were you just know? talking about how – of an athlete I was. I'm just looking here. I've looked this in a while. So with the 13.5 grip, right. DJ says you should jump 14, 14 and you jumped 15.6. Yeah, with 13.6 grip. So we'll talk about that. And I'm not that athletic, ladies and gentlemen. Well, and, <laughs> and look, I know there's people out there that are listening to this. They're like, well, why does that matter? Why does the push matter? And why is that the mark of efficiency? Well, here's my thing. Your hand grip 
I think is way more closely associated with your runway speed than even your push. Because your push can be magnified or actually decreased depending on your technique, right? Absolutely. And so, so for example, it's like, you know, and Joe was never one of the quickest guys off the top of my head. I I know he ran at least eight meters per second. Was I ever quicker? Was Michelle quicker than me? Your your D she, your D three champion yeah she, she was I quicker mean, than me right Michelle Favre I think hit eight point three meters per second yeah. on the runway <laughs> so she was pretty fast and she jumped thirteen nine three quarters um I I don't you know I, I know you were somewhere around eight but you know what I mean it's like you still with thirteen six grip or thirteen five grip jumped fifteen six mm. wow you're really outperforming the chart that you're doing a lot more with what you have yeah you, oh yeah you got to make, that make sense of it. oh one hundred percent and. That, that's actually interesting. I, I mean, obviously, there, I think there was a conversation. It was it was mostly between myself, Brian Monshine, and Jeff Coover. We were talking about how push should not be a measure of efficiency. And I feel like that's a very frustrating conversation. Now, and I get where they're coming from. I get where they say, listen, we're taking a human being, we're and we're putting them on the runway, and we're, we're making them jump 19 feet or, or 6 meters. I, th- I think right. the athlete in question mostly was Sean Barber. Now, Sean Barber, stud. Stud, stud, stud. Probably, yeah, yeah, yeah. probably... I would say maybe for the maybe for the the side of a uh, Peter Lisek, probably the most athletic male pole vaulter. Yeah, I mean, right I now. I really like you know the speed on the runway. I, I mean, and just he's oh, man, he's strong. And I really I saw him jump at the Washington D.C. vault. I I really thought he was going to kill it at Worlds this summer. I really did because he jumped something like eighteen ten at the D.C. vault. No competition. Yeah, yeah. big delays. During the competition, and yet still jumped eighteen ten, mm-hmm. and it looked easy. What was your gripping though? Did, did uh, his pole knock? Eight, did his pole knock eighteen no, off? No, no his pole <laughs> didn't knock it off. Um, no, well, I mean that, that's an interesting point. And and just before you finish your thought, I mean, there you go. I mean, I always bring up Sean Barber for the simple fact that the guy was gripping. I mean, I've heard seventeen six. I think he's on a seventeen six pole, gripping seventeen four. That's what I've heard. Maybe, okay, maybe seventeen eight pole, something like that. All right, so let's go seventeen four even. Yeah. So at 17.4, once you subtract the 8 inches for the box, you're talking about... 16.8 to... 16.8. To 19.8. So, so 3 feet. 3 feet. I almost pushed 3 feet. Right, right. Jo- Joe, gripping 13.5, almost pushed 3 feet. And it's just like, that. that's great, but I expect more. Mm. You know what I mean? I think there's more there, and he could be more efficient. Now, again, this is where everybody chimes in. It was like, well, he jumped six meters. And that's great. I'm, he's a stud. Absolutely. That should, I that love should him. not be taken away. I love away. him to death. I think that's awesome. I'm just saying I think he could do better. Just like I remember Craig Van Leeuwen, my 540 guy, right? He's jumped 17, eight and a half. And we're in the weight room together. This was early in his career. He had, he had already jumped 15, eight at this point. It was We'd been together for about a year. He came to me as a 14, six vaulter. First year with me, jumps 15, eight. And we're in the weight room, we're lifting a little bit, and I'm out benching him. And I said, Craig, you know, I really think you should be beating me. He goes, well, I jumped 15-8, so what does it matter? <laughs> and that's great. But you see how an immature thought that is for like a, I think at the time he's like maybe 19, 20 years old. It's like that's an immature thought. It's like clearly he's a better athlete than me. He should be able to accomplish more than me, right? Like my lifetime best is 14. I, I'm terribly slow. What was that at that time too? It was like 12, oh, 12 feet, 12 Maybe, six. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, you know, so again, it's like he should be out benching me, which today he does. Yeah, yeah. Today he does because he's finally in the last couple of years 
and Craig would openly uh, admit this, and he was on the last podcast episode, that he's bought into the training. Yeah. You know what I mean? He, but when he was younger, it was like he was getting by without doing it. He just beat me the other day. I was sp- and I was just a, a slap yeah. in the face. I was spotting him yeah. as he beat me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Went, I mean, he's doing crazy stuff. What, what did he do with you? I think he did two two. It was either 225 or 235 for six. My best is 225 yeah, for yeah, five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I was, I, I mean, Craig's a big guy. He's, he's right. Probably he's six, three, one ninety five. Yeah. He's yeah. a big guy, but it was like, at the same time, it was like hurt my pride. Yeah. Craig, yeah, Craig yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah. But you, you know, but like, that's the thing. It's like there, it's like, if you're a good athlete, you should be able to beat the lesser athlete. Right. That's, that's hands down what should happen. And so Sean Barber quite consequently, then if he, you know, he can handle that grip, he's creating that kind of speed. I think he should, he should be able to be more efficient. Again, I think, Sean, if you hear this, I'm just letting you know. I think you're awesome. You're a stud. I, just, I definitely think you can be more more efficient. What was uh, – we discussed this a while ago. What was the quote – or I was like, quote, what did you hear about Sam Kendrick? Sam Kendrick says that he doesn't lift weights, but if he needed to, he squats 400. He could squat 400. I'm going to so shoot, think, so I'm think shoot about Sam. That. I'm going to shoot Sam a, a, a DM right now uh, on we, Facebook. All right. We don't need to do this. Please. I'm doing it right now. You, you keep talking. I'm going to ask him. <sighs> Look. Yeah, so that that was a story that we heard um, going to Akron one year, uh, you know, talking to him, and you know, he, he said he he has certain back issues, so he, you know, he but he can still he's still capable of four hundred pound squat, which just goes to tell you, I mean, some of these people have such natural strength levels, you know, and yeah. I actually I just published an article on my website on, on the blog um, about how to choose exercises for the pole vault, and I don't think enough people really think about this. So I kind of like gave you the logic behind how to choose which workouts or which exercises to do with your athletes. Let's say you, in the article I mentioned, let's say you have a 13.6 male pole vaulter and he grips 13.6. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about at that point, he's at, he has an eight inch push, right? So subtract eight inches, add it back up because he jumps 13.6. That's an eight inch push. And you decide that's not efficient enough, right? Like you look at DJ's chart and according to DJ's chart, 13.6 should be 14. So he's at least six inches or seven inches below what DJ says is efficient. So you decide he's got to be more efficient and you decide, you know what, the best exercise we could do gymnastically is pullovers, right? And that's when you hang on a high bar and you pull yourself over, you know, and you you swing around, Mm -hmm. right? Well, what's really, really applicable to the pole vault is being able to no touch the bar when Mm -hmm. you do the pullover. Yeah, explosiveness. Well, now let's say two, three weeks into doing this exercise three times a week, maybe you're doing three sets of five, whatever, three sets of 10, whatever you decide to do, I would recommend three sets of five. Um, you're still not no touching the high bar. Well, here's what I found over the years at Apex. And just keep in mind, guys, on Sundays alone, I'm seeing something between 30 to 60 athletes. Sundays alone, right? I have over 100 athletes a season, and I this is since 2010 and I started coaching in 2004 or five and the club started in 2007. So just you do the math, hundred kids a season since 2010 and just, you know, the amount of bodies I've seen. So in the club, what I figured out is that if you could do a a pull-up with 50% of your body weight attached to the, the, the weight belt, you can no touch the, uh, the bar when with pullovers. If you want to do it fast, you got to do 70% of your body weight. So just for argument's sake, if if you have a boy that weighs 150 pounds, this 13.6 Walter, he would have to be able to do one pull-up with a belt around his waist tied to 75 pounds of plates. And you would have to do one pull-up, chin above the bar. 
If you do that, he can no touch the the the, pull, uh, the bar and the pullovers. Now here's the thing. Let's say now you you go through a whole season of pull-ups, and your kid can only hit 45 pounds. Well, now you have to find exercises that will help push your athlete's pull-ups, right? So now maybe you do some rows, maybe you do some suitcase carries or farmers carries. All right. There's a whole slew of exercises for the lats or the forearms that you can do. You know, there's even grip exercises. I mean, heck, this week we did that uh, oh. Brian Shaw challenge, which let me tell you, you're not going to do the 45-pound plates, Yo. my friends. That's Yo. pretty tough. So, so, um, so in case you guys don't know, was it was Brian Shaw or was it, was it um, Brian Shaw? It was Brian yeah. Shaw said he's a great time world's strongest man. He's six eight, four hundred pounds, monster. Yeah, monster. Yeah. And he's also, I hear, I've seen video. He's like, the, he seems like the nicest guy ever. He's a gentle yeah. giant. He had a grip strength challenge where you take two, I think it started for, for our intermediary yeah. backers, two 25-pound plates and face them. Um, numbers in. Yes, numbers in. So the smooth in. is outside. Yes, and you can can you grip that with one hand and pull it straight up off the ground? Yeah, I, I recommend got, doing it with the 10s first. Yeah. <laughs> so I had a lot. I, I used to be a climber. I, I still kind of climb, but I have relatively good grip strength. I can pull, you know, 450 pounds without any issues. I couldn't do it. I think I got it off the ground for like a half second, maybe like an, yeah. a half an inch off the ground. Yeah, it was, it, it was it, tough. It was tough. This gentleman could do it 45-pound plate. Yeah, it's crazy. Monster. But I would also say his hand is probably the size of the average dinner plate. Yeah. Just so, the, so the, But the thing is there, you can see the logic behind the exercise selection and the workout selection to build the strength required to no-touch the, the pullover bar. Yeah. And then that will correlate into your pull bolt. Now, maybe instead of just pushing eight inches, maybe you could push a foot, now, foot and a half. Just an aside, I sure. noticed Scott Houston. Love Scott Houston. Great guy. He he um, he posted a video of him about a week or two ago doing some weighted pull-ups with a kettlebell. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know how heavy that kettlebell was? I, I asked him. Dude, about, it looked like a 40 or 50. You think it was 40 or 50? And he did. Dude. He did how many? Four or five? Maybe six? I, I don't know. I remember... I, you know what? It's bad. I probably saw it on Instagram, so it just repeats. So in my mind, I'm like, dude, I think Scott just did a thousand pull-ups. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. I actually just sent him a, I sent him a message. I want to know. I haven't talked to him in a while anyway. But, but, the, but okay. But look, that's great. Doing yeah. weighted pull-ups is important. I yeah. mean, um, look. I think well, I, I, ju- just- I just saw. This is you know. I'm, I'm sorry if anybody gets upset, but. Renault Lavillany, our men's world record holder, just posted an exercise. Um, can you pull it up on your phone? Yeah, I'm gonna bring out my phone. Let's pull it up on the phone, and we'll actually Instagram live this for so, our fans. So this looks to be as though he's what doing like you remember in like the was normal. Sit- if I just do normal, that's the story. Yeah, do you press and hold? Okay. Actually, I don't know. Hold uh, on. Uh, Hit, yeah, Hold hit on. that. There we go. Hit press and hold. Oh, wait. I got to yeah, yeah. this back around. All right. So we got... All right. So here's Renault Lavillany, men's world record holder, doing this exercise. God, God knows what. I have asked Westside Barbell, and they don't know why he's doing this. I mean, if anything, he's really pushing with his triceps. So, so this exercise, it, it kind of... You know what this reminds me of? Do you remember the, the 1950s or 60s? They used to have those... Uh, it was almost like a... It was almost like a belt sander, and you would stand in it, and it would like vibrate your thighs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I what did they, they used to call it? Thigh, it was like thigh master, or something like that. I don't know. 
But but here's the thing. So I, and I said it for the story. I wanted to get it in before the story would end. But looking at Renault do this exercise, I mean, here's the deal. I literally messaged Westside Barbell. Westside Barbell is the pinnacle. Yeah, the this pinnacle is one of the, the most well-respected strength and conditioning gyms ever. I mean, they they own a hundred over a hundred forty world records in powerlifting. They've worked with track athletes, UFC athletes football players, various, various different athletes. And it's, look, I'm telling you, they looked at this exercise and they, I asked them, I was like, guys, what do you think this exercise is about? And they were like, at a loss. They're like, I, I don't know what he's trying to do there. Look, looking you know? at, I mean, just, just and, looking and at so, it. No, no, let's, let's go back to that idea of the industry <laughs> standard. Cause okay. I really want to, I, I want to bring it back to that idea as we talk cool. tonight is like thinking about the industry standard. I, I respect Renault Lavillani immensely, guys. Absolutely, absolutely. World record holder, awesome. And you know what? Very inspirational, too, because you know a lot of guys who maybe are a little bit shorter, they look up to him because they're like, he did it, I can do it, too. I would also venture to say pioneer because I'd say he's probably the first French pole vaulter I've ever, ever, ever seen with an outstep. Yeah, really. right, right. So, I mean, you know, a lot of stuff he does well, but look, this exercise right here, I really don't know what's going on here. And I feel like there's other things that would be better use of time. In, ca- in case you guys uh, just want to catch up and watch, if you go to his Instagram, which is Air La Villainy, uh, it was posted on uh, Thursday, November 16th. It's him on some machine. It looks like he's kind of just bouncing around. I'm not really sure what he's doing. As we've discussed, no one really knows what he's doing. I think we asked. I don't think we got any replies as to what the purpose was. It, it might be something for glutes, but uh, I, I, I'm just going to assume he's not doing it right. Um, what, what, didn't you tell me Bronco that you saw a video of him within the last month or so of him deadlifting? Was it, I, I don't think it's on Instagram. I, I, I assume he posted maybe on his Facebook page or something, something like that. Um, what was the weight? It was like two two twenty five, maybe, 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 maybe two twenty five. Yeah. So you have world record holder deadlifting two twenty five, which I don't know how, I mean, I don't know how, I would assume that Renault is such a freak of nature that he literally could walk up never having deadlifted before and pulled, you know, 400 pounds, at least. Maybe, maybe, yeah. And maybe he could if he pushed himself hard. Right. I don't know. Um, And so that's the thing, right? Like, I think the problem is, like, I'm not even, here's the thing. You don't even have to deadlift, right? Like, you can pick another exercise. You can pick several other exercises. A 205, 225 deadlift, that's really not that hard. I mean, I just mentioned earlier in this podcast episode that Amanda Katz, a senior high school girl who weighs 115 pounds, was deadlifting 260 for four, right? And so I'm not saying Renault has to hit this number or that number, but there's a higher expectation. I mean, I've even listened to a podcast, uh, Ryan Flaherty who's a strength and conditioning guy in the, in the New England area. Mm-hmm. He trains a lot of professional athletes, including track and field athletes. And he was saying he has some track and field uh, females who they weigh about roughly 150 pounds. They will, they will trap bar deadlift three and a half times their body weight. That's amazing. You're talking about what, 525 or something like that? I, I don't do that. that right. But that, that's crazy. But, like, but you're talking about elite female sprinters who can really run open stride and attack it, you know? Um, so I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I just, I really feel like 
that's the thing as far as industry standards. It's like we have to really start to understand what what is considered good, what is considered bad yeah. in the strength and conditioning world for training. I mean, again, we're, we're kind of like – we're talking about a lot of different topics tonight. I mean, we're talking about technique. We're talking about training. But it's like what, what is the industry standard? Going back to technique, I mean, first of all, I think we should all have high pull carries with a progressive drop. If you can't agree on that, we're already we're – at, I'm at a loss for words. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like if you want to just support the pull on the way down – to the pit. I mean, you just can't. I, do I, it. I would even say Sam Kendricks. I love Sam. I, I I love Sam Kendricks. I love his jump. I think he's one of the most exciting guys to watch. Um, and I, I obviously I, I hear he's just an awesome guy. But and I would say, and I love the stuff he does off the ground. I would say the one thing I, I just don't think he does very well is the pole carrying the pole drop. And he's regarded even by his father as being one of the the slowest six meter guys ever. Right. And yeah. I think that is there's a direct correlation. Now, listen. Scott Kendricks is his father and coach. I'm sure they work on stuff. They work very systematically. So I'm sure there's a method to the madness and maybe eventually they will get to that. But I would genuinely say there is a direct correlation between his pull carry and drop and his lack of speed at takeoff. And now I look, and I I think what you're saying here, and again, we we talked about Sean Barber earlier, you know, we're not trying to have a disrespectful conversation. Not at all. And, you know, we got to talk about someone, you know, as an example. And I think I agree with you. Sam Kendrick does a great job. I think the work he does on the pole is amazing. But of course, with an early pole drop, that's going to have a negative impact on your, on your runway speed. It just is. Well, also, I, that, I, the, he does, he kind of does this rocking motion that I think every pole vaulter does in the beginning. And I remember him specifically, I think Sam specifically saying, that he does that because he feels he runs faster with it. When he does this very big rock back. I think uh, Jeff Coover does a similar rock back. I think he's gotten better in the last year or two. Uh, who coincidentally, we jumped, we jumped 65 or 70 this year, PR. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, so, yeah. awesome. Um, but, it, you know, it's it's these little tiny things. That, especially on as you get more elite level like Sam, um, it's these little tiny tweaks. That's the difference between being a six-meter guy being a world record guy. Right, sure. Okay, so now I think you're really talking about something where it's like, again, optimization. Yeah. You know, what is most optimal? What's going to create the best jump? You know, and that's the thing. I think it's very easy to be like, well, I'm jumping six meters or I'm a 19 footer or, you know, whatever. I got a medal at this world game. That's fine. But what's going to actually get you the most bang for your buck? What is going to actually push you further? And I'm, I'm going to mention something that is kind of outside technique and training for a second. If you look at NFL guys, a professional sport, true professional sport, these guys are getting paid and your, your speed, your strength, your skill level all has a direct correlation on how much you will or won't get paid this year or whether you get paid at all. And I mean, you see it all the time. Guys sign a big contract, right? Take time off in the, the summer, get cut, get demoted. You know, and we, we mentioned this on the last podcast. I, I think we were talking about uh, one of the examples was the Green Bay Packers running back from a couple of years ago. They, God, name escapes me now. But he literally just got overweight and they cut him. Yeah. You know, and that's a professional sport where you don't, there's too much at stake. Whereas I feel like in the pole vault world, let's face it. Other than maybe a handful of people who are making a decent living off a of pole vault, mm-hmm. everybody else 
is doing it because they're passionate about it. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's maybe, and I hate to say this, maybe not enough a stake to push people to really optimize. Because the thing that I feel like, here's the thing, at, at my club, right, there's more at stake, right? A kid comes to my club, you know, the kid, the parents, whoever, they're paying, they got to come in, they got to make that time work. And, and- because they're paying money to come train, they're not going to waste time. This is not just for fun. Right. Yeah, and in case you guys don't know, if you're at apex vaulting and you're not pushing at least two feet, two feet for a guy, one foot for a girl, you're kicked out of the club. No, I'm, yeah, I'm kidding. Yeah, I'm that's kidding. A I'm joke. Kidding. That's I'm a kidding. joke. Uh, yeah, how, I wish everybody was doing at least how, that. How many athletes, without specific being specific, how many athletes do you think you've had high school or college? I'm sure it's probably more rampant in college that you've had to say come in after the summer and you just look at this kid and go, what happened to? The stud athlete that I had last outdoor season. So, you know, that's interesting that you point out. I really think it's rare. Really? Yeah, because I think at Apex and I, you know, I remember one year you were coaching at a different club and you, you I had called you, you called me, I forget about what, and it was in the middle of the summer and I was like, how's it going, this and that, and you're like, oh, Bronco, it must be really slow at Apex, right? It's summertime. <laughs> and I'm like, slow? What are you talking about? I'm like, I have all my high school kids prepping for next year. Whether they're just prepping for the next year or they're getting ready for, you know, college. Yeah. And then all my college kids came back and they're training for the summer, getting ready for next year. You know, like there's we never stop, you know. So I think at my club, kids really know it's like, listen, if you're not working, and this is where competition competition, right? If there was money at stake, if pole vaulting was more professional, people never right, get fat. Yeah. You you don't have time to take off. Because if you're taking a month off, Someone else is working during that month and you're getting passed up. And we I was actually just talking about this at the club. Like my kids are never shocked. They're not like they don't go to a meet and all of a sudden like they get passed up on the totem pole and some some guy or girl beats them, you know, and now they drop from number one to number two in the club. They see it coming in practice. Mm. We see it. Right. They're not shocked at the meet. They know what's coming. Right. You, you've done a great job of instilling discipline on a lot of these kids, whether it's, you know, the, 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 well, the thank the, you. The little, I appreciate that. No problem. You've done it to me. I might have been a little resistant at times, but uh, whether it's, you know, you have your, uh, the marker boards you have up, it's statistics and stuff like that. And all those, some, some, you said, you have quotes, maybe you still do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I feel like you definitely have that discipline that I, in case you guys don't know, I went to coach at a neighboring club about uh, our hour maybe uh yeah. west of of uh, west mm-hmm. of, of apex and um i noticed that when i was coaching there i started in april they, they like i said it's slow like bronco said it's slowed down in the summertime and i called and we were talking i was like oh it must have slowed down for you with bronco's kids there's there's so much discipline instilled in these kids that they they don't stop obviously they take rest they don't overwork you don't want to you don't want right, to right. your no, muscle fibers i'm not down. trying to hurt anybody but you know when you take an entire summer off and you say, oh, it's the summertime. And I've done this. I'm guilty well, of this. And, and what I think scientifically they've shown, within four days of inactivity, you're already losing muscle yeah. mass. Yeah. And then I heard I heard a, a podcast. Um, gosh, I, I'm so terrible. The strength and conditioning coach for the Arizona Cardinals. He's really famous. I'm going to look him up while Joe finishes his story. But he said if you take three days off, it has a, a huge negative impact on your immune system. I heard two so, days, man. Right. So now you think about taking a month off. Yeah. Oh, uh, man. I Listen, nothing good is coming from a month off. Two months off? That's no good. Yeah. And, and obviously, like, a lot of you, I'm sure there's going to be some athletes that are at listening to this right now saying, oh, I took the summer off and I bounced back pretty quick. There is there is muscle memory there where, you know, your, your muscle tissue fibers – 
they let their, the cells lend their nucleus to their muscle, other cells. And obviously there's going to be some bounce back and it might be quicker for some, some people than others, but there's, there's literally no study that I've ever come across that is, that is indicated that it is good, a good idea to take a month, unless you're injured, of course, to take a month or two months. The Arizona Cardinal strength and conditioning coach, I apologize. His name is Buddy Morris. Amazing strength and conditioning coach. Developed some of the best talent the NFL has ever seen. I think I'm going to name my kid Buddy yeah. Morris. Buddy Morris <laughs> Oliveri has a really good ring to um, it. But, but just to go off of what you just said, and I'm sorry, I'm going to let you finish, but um, yeah, like – you may feel fine after you took the summer off and you're doing well. My argument would be, how far did you really push your physical uh, uh, parameters? You know what I mean? Like, you, you, did you push your capacity levels? Did you PR lifting this year? Did you PR speed-wise? Because PR and pole vault is one thing. But it's like, you know, how far are you pushing those physical capacities? Because sometimes technique can mask loss of athleticism. I've literally seen people PR after they got slower because the technique got a little bit better. And then, then it's the next year you see the big drop off. Right. So it's like, and people who aren't training hard, well, of course you took two months off. As long as you didn't have a really poor diet, you'll, right. you'll come back all right. Right. Yeah. As long as you didn't trash yourself, you know, as long yeah, as you didn't yeah. stay in bed for the three months and was drinking right, all the time. Right. Right. But it's, it's you know, I, I find that I see a lot of athletes. You know, I took time off and I bounced back. You know, I was jumping eleven six. Now I'm, you know, I'm right, right at the beginning. I'm jumping eleven. Well, okay. Here's the thing, especially in in, in strength training. I see, you know, you got to take, you got to rest. You got to give your body time to recover. However, you give yourself a week of maybe active rest or two weeks active rest. You know, you got to keep on pushing because they are always, always, always trying to push past barriers, push new limits, push new numbers. So you say, okay, I'm like right where I was when I left off, you know, three months ago. Okay, that's fine that you didn't, you know, get much worse. However, how much better could you have gotten in that time wow, yeah. from just doing strength training? Not even talking about pole vaulting. Right, right. Just, just, just increasing your physical parameters. You know, are your capacity levels better? Is, is your max effort strength better? Are you more explosive? Is your conditioning good enough? Not, you know, th- these are all things that, yeah. that become super, super important. You know, I, I mean, w- we had a girl at Rampo College, uh, Britt Delcase, mm-hmm. who I remember her telling me at one point that she was so fit that she would have to run faster than a seven-minute mile on her recovery jogs to break a sweat. Wow. I definitely didn't tell the cross-country coach about that. I didn't want Don't do that. Yeah. They'll, they'll, they'll get her. <laughs> um, but, but I think perfect – and I, I hate to use myself as an example again. We already discussed how slow I am, but like – Looking back at when I was training, you know, every day, six days a week, we'll say, and when I was jumping two or three times a week, and I was with Bronco, and we were doing good technical stuff, I had to really strive. Just, just go to like three left. I had to really work and hit, hit everything right. Hit my, you know, hit my steps right. Be tall at takeoff. Hit my takeoff right. Pull properly. I had to hit all these things properly to get on. Say, what was my big pull back then? With, with, with like, with a. With, 12.6 grip, 12.3 grip even, I maybe a 13.60. Now, just in case yeah. you guys don't know, I when I was vaulting for Rampo, I was 5'7.5", 5'8", 135 pounds. And I would really have to, to hit everything just right to be on you know a 13.60, maybe 13.65 from a 3. Now, I am much stronger than I was then. I think, you know, my bench is up 50, 60 pounds. My deadlift's up like 150 pounds. My squat's up, you know, 50, 60 pounds. Um, I now can come, I'm not jumping. I have not jumped seriously in about two, three years now. I can, 
waltz into that club without much of a warm-up. Go back to a three and pick up a 13-7-65. Granted, I'm heavy, but I could still come in and just hit takeoff, not really working, not worrying too much about technique and still wrap, you know, a 16-6, 17-foot bungee. Right. And I think a lot of that just, I think a lot of that goes to show just how much you really do get from just strength. And I'm not, I'm definitely not faster than I was, but I think I could be if I didn't have so many well, Right. You have some injuries that are holding you back yeah. and such. And, and look, there's still the thing, like, as long as you are doing your sport, like the number one has to be pole vault, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, industry standard, I think, and unfortunately, even the places that aren't heavy on strength and conditioning, a lot of times the kids in college are lifting at 6 a.m. and then pole vaulting later in the day, Ooh, right? Like that's the opposite. But it's like your number one has to be pole vault. And as long as you're doing pole vault at a high intensity level and, you know, like at Apex, we kind of usually, usually do a three-day split. So we'll have like, let's say on a Monday, Wednesday, Friday split, uh, Monday will be your day that you can go as far back as maybe a five left. That's kind of a medium day. Wednesdays will be completely drill. Maybe you get back to a three and then Fridays, because now there's a three day gap between Monday and Friday, Friday will be your big day. That's where you can do your seven, eight, nine, ten 10 left approach, depending on what you want to do. And depending on time of year, you know, it's not that we're always doing a full approach. And how many of those, how many full approach do you say? Whether whether takeoff or not takeoff, um, how many how many do you say you normally do for for your particular athlete? I, I think again it goes now as far as strength and conditioning. I think it goes back to your physical capacity level. I think people are in really really great shape. I mean, I know even me personally, I had one session where I went down to Long Island to go hang out with my buddy Jim Henderson, who has a pole vault club in Long Island. I think I took forty seven left approaches that day. Forty seven left approaches, not forty seven. Yeah. 47 laps. That's <laughs> the marathon pole vault. I took, I did seven laps and I did 40 jumps that's, from a seven lap. That's a lot. And I know even like Calvin Hartman, when he was at his peak, he's a 15-9 guy um, for us at Ramapo, he would take at least 20, 30 jumps. Britt Delcase, the girl that was trying to break a uh, sweat with a seven-minute mile, um, she would take a lot of jumps. Michelle Favre, I mean, you... I think you've experienced that's, some Michelle Favre practices where she would practice for three hours. Yeah, that's you know? crazy because I'm, I'm thinking back, man, I'd do like 12 to 15 well, and I'd so, be toast. So here's my thing. I think it all depends on your physical capacity level right. and your recovery yeah. level. I, I mean, I do find that probably if you're doing uh, – now, if you're doing a you know, full approach, 7, 8, 9, 10 left even – you're probably your best quality is going to be about between five to 12 jumps in. And then if you want to just keep jumping for reps, then you got to back off. So if you think about it, like in lifting terms, you want to do a percentage of what's possible. So maybe like, let's say if you're a guy, you work up to like your max grip of 14, six, you know, and let's say you're on a 1585, 1590, you're that's probably going to be, like I said, somewhere in the five to 12 jump range. And then you might have to back down to like, you know, 14 foot grip, 13, nine grip, get back down to a 75, you know, and now you can take some more reps and just work on stuff just for rhythm. Yeah, you know, you don't have to be dead on to make it work. Right, time, right. Yeah. And you're not gonna have to push that hard. But, you know, again, it depends on capacity levels. But yeah, I mean, typically speaking, I, you know, I don't think anybody's taking more than 20, 20 jumps. Besides Renault, but Renault is a physical freak. Because I remember as Alan, Alan Launder wrote in Beginner to Booker, 
uh, that I think I think the he said he said that the Russians did some testing and they determined twelve to fifteen a week tops for your for your full approach. And, and, I was, and they're talking about max effort. Yes, they're talking max. Yeah. So that was right in that that ballpark where you're right. saying you know your 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 top fourteen six grip on your fifteen eighty or whatever. Um, and I know Renault takes like forty or fifty jumps from his long approach. So he's he's right. an out, but he's an outlier. Right, but then I even heard about Renault, you know, from the different circles that I, I talked to that, you know, of, of late, the last few years, and I mean, again, there's so many variables, guys. I mean, there's life stress, sleep, recovery, uh, injury, but I heard he started having trouble doing his full approach. He had to back down to an eight because he's a guy that yeah. does 10 left. 10 he had to back yeah. down to an eight left to actually take off and practice. Do you think it was physical or mental? I mean, he did just have a kid, so I know that that's well, stressful. Right, but so and, – and I've talked about this on the podcast before. I think that there's just some people that – like I just did that Monday, Wednesday, Friday split. Yeah. Again, the thing is you have to rotate. You know what I mean? You can't do too many sessions. Like let's say if your full approach is eight left. You can't start your eight lefts in November and think that you're going to do eight lefts every single Friday or Saturday right, till right. May. I mean, you're going to you're going to plateau and then actually get worse. Who was so you approach? have to constantly cycle yeah. the the approaches. Like I'll start out like let's say really really early season. You know that Monday instead of going back to a five, we might do one, two, three left approach. Wednesday just ones. Friday we might get back to a four or five. Then as we progress through the season, Mondays we might do a four or five. Fridays we might get back to a six. I think we saw that. And then all the way back, like maybe we're talking about now two, three months going into championship season. Mm -hmm. That's when we might head back. Oh, 100%. I think we saw that on the great great, uh, stage this year, uh, Peter Lisek this past year, where he Mm -hmm. jumped six meters early, early early. in indoor season. And I think – he did definitely make some technical changes that I thought were great for him, um, but also I would say he definitely didn't he didn't hit no six he didn't hit six meters a world championship. You know what I mean? And well, not even close. Well, you know what's and you know what's funny. So like again, going back to industry standard, yeah. right? If we talk about industry standard, um, you know, one I hope clearly people are getting the idea of like maybe some of the things that we should be doing throughout the week, pole vault wise and training wise, right? Yeah. Like we have to be pushing these capacity numbers and. You know, you have to have a high pole carrying. You can't just be doing your full approach every single day. Like these are not industry standards, right? Well, here's my my issue, and, and people have talked about it for years. Track and field athletes can literally peak for kind of like world record or personal best numbers. One or two weeks. Once or twice a year. Yeah, yeah. Right? You know what I mean? Like maybe once for indoors, maybe once for outdoors. And the thing is, unfortunately, you know, the professionals, they don't really have, let's say, like a season that like goes into a championship and kind of like builds up. Instead, it's like, all right, there's some kind of like mishmash thrown around indoor meets. Sometimes we have a world indoor world championship that most people don't even elect to go to. Yeah. And then outdoors, I mean, outdoors starts as early as like May, and then you might jump at worlds, you know, late July, early August. That's a long time to be trying to do a full approach. That's why, I mean, even someone like Katarina Stefaniti, who went undefeated this past summer, how amazing. You know what I mean? That she was able to do that throughout the whole whole outdoors. But that's why I almost feel like, talk about industry standard. It's like, you know, imagine a pole vault championship series where maybe within a single month, we have qualifying rounds that lead to a national championship. You do it in a single month, 
you're going to really see some people light it up and week after week get better and better and better and boom. Yeah, hit it at a national and championship. I will say before forward because I know someone. I know Jeff Cougar would jump on this. Uh, obviously, Sam Kendricks had an incredible undefeated season this past year as well, yeah. which was incredible. But I think um, the, the the athlete that I've seen it exemplify peaking. Maybe maybe it's just I've just noticed it more. Brad Walker, coincidentally, the person who advocates weightlifting the most. Um, Brad Walker, I I think peaked. I remember that 2008 year when he set the American record. Yeah, uh, a lot of people I think argued that you know he he was progressively getting better and better, and then he hit that six oh four mark, and I think a lot of people were saying that he kind of peaked a little early for the Olympics. Granted, I would say both in two thousand eight and two thousand twelve, I'm pretty sure he in both those years he had bombs over his qualifying bars, and he just got unlucky with the standards. Well, I, you know, but again, that kind of and this is a little bit different topic topic and speaks of things that maybe need to change in the sport but i think that's a little bit a problem with our sport like look a guy like brad walker yeah he's a stud he's supposed to you know do well at the olympics but he's got to make sure he qualifies yeah right so he's got usa qualifier that is a month month and a half before the olympics does he peak for that does he chance just doing a shorter approach and just keep building up so tough and i think that that's something that only the u.s does right where well every country's different but yes different but it's it's the the u.s just does is the top three finishers at the usa trials which is a month prior right yes i mean look at that look at the grinder that was was it was it 2000 2001 i think it was 590 right team and it was like 585 was an alternate right now that's don't crazy. don't even get me started on, you know. I don't think anyone jumped. No one second. You know what was uh what was the bronze or silver medal at the USA Trials in sixteen? It was like five seven or something like that. But like, don't even get me started on that. But but look at that grinder that people got in in the two thousand Olympic Trials. How are they supposed to you know hit that type of peak performance? How many athletes? Let me ask you this: How many athletes were like, oh, I'm not going to peak for the USA Trials because I want to peak for the Olympics, and then they got fifth or sixth yeah. because everyone else speaking and then and then i mean obviously well, but, but how about even at the olympics you know you have a scenario where you have to jump a day before finals or two days before finals yeah that's not optimal either that's tough dude have these guys just jump in fine like listen i'm sorry i've seen way too many high school and college athletes have to go into a field of like i don't know how many and they jump and you get fine performances you have to wait around a little bit it is what it is but that would be way more exciting than having people try to skate through a, a, a qualifying round yeah. and then, you know, finals. That's, that's and then, tough. <sighs> I mean, I mean, you know, you know I'll, I'll say this. You know how you do it? You do it like Katarina Stefaniti where you open at a bar where you know it's going to be – it's going to make it. Like she opened, a, she opened a 460, right? 460 was her only – she jumped – took one attempt at qualifying, 460, 4 meter 60, which is 15-1, and she cleared it first attempt. And that was it. And her final looked a lot like that. And I'll never forget this. Uh, uh, Raphael Holstep, when he won the world championship in, what was that, 2011, 2012? Mm-hmm. Um, when he won the world championship, he did something, I would say, very different from every other meet he's done. Right, Most of his meets will come in at 50. He'll jump 60 and 70. You know what he did at Worlds? He opened up at, I think, uh, Basically, I think 70, went 70, 80, 87, something like 5 meters, 75 meters, 78, and then 5 meters, 87, something like that. He knew. He knew going into that meet, this is what it's going to take to to win this, to be the world champion, and he did it. If you go into this meet 
with the mindset, oh, you know, I, I don't know today. Let me open up at this low bar, make sure I clear it, and then I'll get on my big pole. You can't do that at a world championship meet or an Olympic meet or a, or a, or a national meet. You can't do that, and I see it so many times. And you know what? The only the only person I see get by with it, Sam Kendricks, I know. who jumps every bar, and he always proves me wrong with that. But besides that, I will say again, Sam is an outlier, and I love Sam. Right. Every other athlete, how many athletes do you see? Oh, it's it's the USA trial. I'm going to open up a 515. Right. That's and, no good. And listen, I, I think you bring up a, an important point, like outlier, right? Like what's an outlier? It's something that stands out. It's not the norm, yeah. right? And I think a lot of times we like to look at an outlier, and we don't understand what's the norm, you know? Yeah. And look, that's great. You want to come in at opening bars and jump every bar? Be my guest, but one, you Don't. better be conditioned for it. And I would say this, Sam is conditioned for it. Yeah. He does a lot of repeat 200s, repeat 400s. I mean, his conditioning is amazing. And so he can produce that level often. Right. But most people who are, who are working max effort. Yeah. You're not going to be able to give that kind of effort all the time. No, you know. And I remember what was the, what, remember the big controversy with USA's this year with the opening bar for the female. They said it was too oh, high. Oh yeah, yeah. And listen, and I get that, and I get that we want to see the best performance from our girls. But you know what? If a if one of our girls can't come into a meet and jump, I, I don't remember what the opening was or what the first two bars were. But if a, if a, yeah, it might if have been a, like fourteen seven something like that. If, a, if yo. A girl can't jump at elite level fourteen seven at an opening bar, and we have that kind of high quality. Yeah, I, you know what I mean. It's not like think. it's not like we have like just Sandy and everybody else is like a fourteen six girl. It's like no, no. we have a lot of fifteen plus girls. No, Come we on. had three sixteen foot girls uh, two or uh, yeah last year, last year two years. Ago. Not this past year, the year yeah, before. Yeah, the year before yeah. we had three sixteen foot girls. That if if a girl that can't jump that at an opening bar, which is basically going to be the opening bar at Worlds shouldn't be representing the United States. Right. And don't get me wrong, developmental athletes, welcome, welcome. But on that stage, at that level, it's I, I don't feel bad about that opening bar. Right, right. Um, you know, it, it, it just, it's weird, you know. I, I think that a lot of times this is where, you know, people want to be overly nice, overly sympathetic. And listen, I'm all about the sport. I mean, literally, this is my life. You know, this is all I do is, is pole vaulting, you know. And I want to see this sport grow. But I think we have to realize what it takes to grow. And when you're talking about professional level stuff and you want people to watch it, you want people to have be excited about it, we need higher opening bars. We yeah. need it to be back and forth. We need it to move we need you know to, we need to prepare these athletes for what they're going to experience in the world scale yeah. i can't tell you how many times i have seen some usa guy and this, this sounds mean i can't tell you how many times a usa athlete who jumps 17 8 great great that's great consider themselves elite i don't and listen 17 is a good bar as a good bar especially a small community that's great and i think that is definitely a stepping stone to jumping bigger bars but I feel like unless you're, you know, I think there's a, a tier above. I think that's a tier just below be, being an elite athlete. I think. Well, I'm, okay. I'm, so l- let me chime in. Cause just please to, do. You have a better understanding than I do. No, 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 no. Just, just to clear up a couple of things. I think what you're discussing is like, look, if we're talking about Olympic level, world level, where you're sending the top three mm-hmm. of the A standard individuals from a country. Yeah. I mean, come on. Let's face it. 
If you're going to the uh, Olympics or World Championships as a male or female on the male side, you definitely have to jump over 19 feet. On the female side, so crazy. What what was going to get a medal a couple of years ago versus now? Oh, I mean, now yeah. you're talking about you know you're going to have to jump 15 nine or higher as a female to get a medal. You know, absolutely. So it's like if you can't accomplish those tasks at that high of a level, like we're really like we can't talk now. Yeah. You know, but ne- but. The thing that I really want to see for our sport and pole vault specifically, forget about track, is I would really, really love to see, you know, kind of things that I've talked about in the past, like a proposal of like a regional system with semifinals and nationals where more people get to compete, several pits at the same time, having great online announcing, you know, and seeing people from all different regions getting to that next level. Because what I think holds a lot of those 17-8 guys back is that they don't get to go to USA's. Oh, 100%. They never get to compete at that level. And so it's like, if we had this kind of system where you get to qualify, you get to qualify, people get to see really how close they are to the next level. Yeah. Because if you, let's think about another sport that, you know, I brought up the NFL before as being a professional sport versus pole vaulting, which is not really professional when you think about the money. Right. CrossFit. CrossFit is on par with pole vaulting, but yet, because we they have such a great regional system, where you get to see where you rank amongst everybody and you get to compete amongst everybody and see you know what you need to do next year to get to the next level, you see a higher intensity level of CrossFit athletes sometimes than you see in the pole vault community. I mean, I just, listen, I know some people are going to le- hear this podcast and say, you know what, Bronco, you know what, Joe, you're being a little bit mean, you're being a little bit pushy, but if pole vault's going to take it to the next level, we need better. We need to push more. You know, we, we need to require a higher standard. So, so could you clarify for me and every, everyone listening, what do you mean by when you say pole vaulting is on the – or say CrossFit is on the same level as pole vaulting? Because I, I – and I, I'll be honest. I, I'm just – I'm going to disagree with you here. I don't see that. I see CrossFit – CrossFit's a lot like soccer. You want to know why it's the it's the most popular sport in the world? Because it's cheap to play. Anyone can do it. It doesn't require a whole lot of equipment. Now, don't get me wrong. Cross requires equipment. You need a high bar, uh, powerlifting bar, whatever. But it doesn't require a $25,000 pole vault pit and $50,000 worth of poles. Okay, but but let, let me chime in with that. And sure, I think bare bones, you could be the guy that maybe pays $1,500, $2,000 to have his own personal home gym right. to do his CrossFit workouts. But let's say a CrossFit box I would argue you're you're looking at facilities that are anywhere between five to twenty thousand square feet that have anywhere between twenty thousand to two hundred thousand dollars worth of weight equipment. Right. I mean, we were just talking about earlier. I was looking at some elite FTS stuff, right, right, right. Westside Barbell. I mean, one one machine costs thirty four hundred dollars. Yeah. One machine, and that's no weights, people. You know, you think about now buying plates. Like when you walk into a gym, you might take it for granted. Each plate is a dollar a pound. Yeah. So a 45-pound plate costs $45. So when you see multiple 45-pound plates, just do the math. That's a lot of money, okay? So the thing is, like, yeah, a CrossFit gym might be very expensive, actually, when you think about it, right? It and, could be, I suppose. Right. And But the thing is, people have access to the CrossFit gyms, and they have access to these competitions. I mean, this is something that I keep talking about with pole vaulting. You're post-collegiate. There's not a lot of places to go to jump. I mean, I could not believe the one time one of my guys was uh, doing a semester away from his college, 
and he was down south and he contacted one of the pole vault clubs and they're like, we don't deal with college athletes, which is crazy, you know? Um, what, what, did you have another question about CrossFit as far as their playoff system or it being professional or at the same level as track? No, I just, or pole vault, I, 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 just I just feel it's a sport where there's a lot more involvement. I think it's a much bigger community. Right. No, I agree with that. I think it does draw a lot more because think about it. <laughs> okay. So going back to the whole idea of professionalism or industry standard, right? If you're going to have an industry standard, you need to start thinking on professional terms, right? Right, right, right. right. So here's the thing. If you own a CrossFit gym, you are a business owner and you have to make it financially viable. There ha- you can't just be in the red. You can't just be friends and do it with your friends and, you know, oh, whatever. Don't worry, guys. I have a full-time job and I just pay for the gym on the side. Yeah, yeah. No, no, there's, no, no. There's, this has to be something where it makes money, right? There's definitely not – we discussed this, I think, a week ago. There's definitely not – and this might sound selfish, but there's definitely not enough business-minded people in the pole vault community. I hate – and listen, I'm going to name drop here. I hate to do it. But you have you Bronco, you have this great plan or idea for a really much of a, a, a much more vast Povo community, and I think it has this beautiful regional system. More people can get involved. There's going to be prize. There could, could be prize money if people are willing to participate. And I think it's great. And you know what? I heard a very elite pole vaulter blow it off recently. And all right, I'm getting the need that I shouldn't name drop. But I'll just say I heard a very elite pole vault allegedly. allegedly just blew this idea off, said, it, you know, oh, that's cute, it, as it's not something special. And I think that is just so short and narrow-minded. Well, right, and, and going back to, like, long-term, right? That's that yeah, idea of long-term. Absolutely. And, and so here's the thing. Going back to CrossFit, when you have gym owners that they have to make this a viable thing, here's the thing. One – they're not saying no to collegiate athletes. They're not saying no to post-collegiate athletes. They're not saying no to 50-year-old people who want to CrossFit. They're not saying no to people who don't have any experience. Like, beginners are welcome. I can't tell you how often people contact me and they're like, oh, do you take beginners? I'm sorry. If you're a pole vault club and you don't take beginners, you're thinking too that's, small. Yeah, no, you need beginners because where are your professionals going to come from? Think, think about me for a second. How many years have we been been together? All right, so I should I should rephrase that. How many years have you been coaching me? Remember when I was a beginner? Yeah, I was a little five, six, nothing, yeah. jumping ten feet. I told my guys, I'm like, yeah. if you lose to Joe, I swear to God, you're out of the club. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that turned around real quick. Though. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was like, guys, if you jump as good as Joe, I'll keep you around. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I think that's the thing. It's like you have to take beginners. You have to open up the doors to anybody who wants to do this. We have to make it more popular. But unfortunately, I think a lot of people are doing pole vaulting as a side thing, you know, and they don't want to work with beginners or they only want to work with this group or that group. And the other thing, nobody wants to run a meet. And I get it. For years, I was at that point where I didn't want to run a meet because I'm like, oh my God, it's such a hassle. But here's the thing. If there's no meets, why would I train? Like, if you can't compete, why would you train? I mean, even these people who do CrossFit, and I think it's so beautiful. Like, even if you don't like CrossFit as a sport, right? right. Or you think it's, ah, you'll get hurt doing it or whatever, whatever your opinion may be. The idea behind it, the fact that people can come in, join a CrossFit gym, and then go compete with their teammates right. at, at, a, at a competition, that's amazing. And they, in Polvo, a lot of times, there's no competitions. They also have a lot 
in the CrossFit community, they also have a lot of in-house meets. I don't right. see that happening. I mean, okay, I remember like when I was at Lynchburg, we would have that one opening season meet indoor where it was kind of just a test of water. You'd be like, oof. Tommy Clark's not good from a seven. Let's let's keep it at five for this meet. But well, you know what I mean. Like, so so he, here's the thing that I think is funny because I think in track we're so obsessed with records, and I've often talked about this. I think track and field, uh, you know, has this poor business model of world records. You know, they're like, oh, we got to push the world records. When I think that the model should be uh, competition, we should be pushing competition as the business model, not world records. Because at every meet, you're not going to get world records. World records are rare. But you know what you will get every meet? Competition. So I think even there have been people who shied away from club meets because they're like, oh, man, you know what? If we have a club meet, people might not think the marks are legit, this and that. Here's my deal. If you go to a club meet, whatever the case may be, if the runway's too short or, you know, I don't know, it's an elevated runway or whatever the case may be. That's okay. Everybody there that day is competing under the same, uh, the same environment. So it's a fair competition. And so whatever you jump that day is, hey, we're going to find out who's the winner, who's the loser. And we need to get away from this record stuff. It's like, well, you know, at that meet, they, they had an elevated runway. Or at that meet, they, they had a little bit deeper box. Maybe. But everybody's competing on an even playing field that day. And what we need to push in in, in pole vaulting is the competition aspect, not necessarily the records. I mean, think about this. I'm going to bring up another another sport, NASCAR. How many people can name the fastest lap at the Daytona 500? Not many. Not many. But everybody can tell you who won. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And I would even go back to CrossFit. Probably not a lot of people could tell you who's the fastest to do however many burpees or whatever. But they can tell you who won. They know Rich Froning is a stud. Right. You know? Well, we, you brought this up my first podcast. Not A record is not set every competition, as much as we'd like it to be. Yeah. But what – and you said this. I'm quoting you now. What does every competition have? Has a winner. Has a loser. More importantly, has a winner. Yeah. You know? Well, and, and you get to see that unfold. Who has that competitive spirit? Because, look, everybody could go to a meet. You know, let and let let's think bigger, right? Outside of the US. Everybody can go to a meet in their home country where the competition is not that big and set some kind of record. But now when it counts and there's a medal on the line, more importantly, imagine like, listen, when I told Katarina Stefanini that the winner of the CrossFit games gets two hundred fifty thousand dollars, the look on her face, she was shocked. Now you imagine two hundred fifty thousand dollars on the line. At a club, so the, at a club championship. Like imagine, girls. yeah, like club nationals or something like that. And you're jump, you are going to see an immense competition. And at that point, it doesn't even matter what the bar's at. I mean, I honestly, I if two hundred fifty thousand dollars on the line, I'd love to see like the studs go from a one left approach and let's see who could jump thirteen feet. <laughs> that will be amazing. You will see them pull something out. Yeah, you know? but if you want to see the best of the best, and I'm not saying the best of the best, is what we have, I'm saying. What the human body is capable of. I'm sorry. Selfish. But if you want to see the best of what the human body is capable of, you need to put money on the line. Well, but but again, <laughs> that goes to like that idea of an industry standard and professionalism, right? So in the CrossFit world, you can see where, look, everything is done on a business level, right? Yeah. Like if you own a CrossFit box, 
you have to make it run like a business. It and, has to be efficient. And when you say CrossFit box, you just clarify. You just mean a gym, a gym right? Gym, right. right. They call it, that's the slang, guys, if you don't know. But so if you have a CrossFit gym slash box, right, you have to run it as a business. You're providing a great product, a great service for your clients, but it has to be a business. And then there has to be competitions. People want to compete. That's why they're doing a sport, right? And so the same thing for pole vault. We have to think about it in a more open way and involve more people. I mean, I oftentimes say, look, here's the deal. And, I, and it was funny, um, the kid who came in today, uh, I was talking about him before, the multi. Mm-hmm. He's majoring in, um, like, analytics. Right. He's uh, working in financial disruption. Oh, I know how that sounds. That sounds like he's a hacker and he's <laughs> dealing with Bitcoin. But what he actually uh, it means, he's explaining to me, is financial disruption is about um, people who are working with internet and online technologies that – kind of eliminate, let's say, the need for a a physical bank. So it's disrupting normal business flow and instead, uh, you know, making more streamlined. But anyway, we were talking and, you know, he was was discussing these ideas with me and, um, you know, I started talking about the sport and how kind of similar things have to happen with our sport. It has to be more streamlined and more open to allow more athletes to compete in it. Um, I'm going to be honest. I kind of lost my train of thought right now. No, that's all right. I, I have, I have a good idea to bounce back to it. Yeah. I think it's, it's quite in line. So at these competitions, so, so I, I want to go back to your, to your vision that you've had. I know you recently had a meeting in Las Vegas with a bunch of athletes and a couple coaches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You had this vision of a beautiful club, uh, club kind of championship at the end of the year, which I'm sure will stem from regional meets and single competitions. Yeah, I mean, like it, that. definitely some promising things happen. I, I, I think things are, are going so, in the so, right so, so prize money. This, this, I think, I think has been a, I think it's the kind of thing no one wants to talk about, but I think it's on everyone's mind. So prize money, would that be something that's kind of like divvied up by division? Say if you have, you know, oh, girls that are coming in with sub 10. Also, well, and just, just something that's coming to my head, how would you, you know, make sure you don't have this 14 foot girl that's saying, I've only jumped 10, six, I'm going to be in the 10, eight division and obviously bomb it. So, well, okay. So a couple things and kind of going back to uh, the athlete that I was talking about that works in this financial disruption. Um, the thing that he kind of talked about, and we were talking about analytics and numbers. So he jumped at Vietnam and, and you know, his national coach there, he kind of said they would just show up to practice and just jump. And he goes, here's the other thing, Bronco. This national coach, and he's talking about also bigger scale like other countries as well, they just get the top athletes and they're only dealing with a handful of people at a time. And I go, well, listen. I coach, like I said, 30 to 60 athletes on a Sunday alone, right? And I know Mike Lorick from Vertical Assault, he coaches something like 80 athletes on a Sunday, right? I've been to those sessions. Yeah. So, um, and just so everybody understands, it's not 80 kids on the runway at the same time. It's not 60 kids. We're we're having multiple sessions on a Sunday with 10 kids on the runway. I think at Vertical, they do eight. So anyway, so um, I go, here's the deal, right? Back in the day, right, in the old – old times, right? Before the internet was huge. The best, and I'll use poker as an example, the best poker players in the world were the ones that played live. They would go to casinos and play for eight hours a day. Maybe play play two, three games in a day. Maybe, right? Then the internet came out and you had these guys who would have two, three, four screens with four games per screen playing multiple games throughout the day and me, me and this athlete we were talking about, it's like, think about it just from a numbers game. Who's going to end up being a better poker player? The guy playing live or the guy playing at home 
on his three or four sc- screen setup. Right. Well, it's all about the amount of hands you get and right. experience. Right? And so even now, going back to CrossFit, when you own a CrossFit box or gym and you have the athletes, the numbers coming in, you have to know what to do with the talented athletes and the beginners. And you have to provide service for all of them. Whereas I feel like a lot of pole vault coaches, because of the low number of athletes that they deal with, they have a limited toolbox of drills, training ideas that they can implement. Right. They they, they can literally oh. be like, well, this is what worked with John. Oh. Well, all right, but what about the thousand? Like, there's certainly a spectrum of athletes with elite to beginner that you could be dealing with, and you have to have ideas and tools to work with all of them. Well, not even that, but how, oh, yeah, but how many college coaches do you know that are kind of banking off of one or two athletes that are at a D1 school? Well, Okay, you not to okay. You only got the 15, 16 footers because you're a D one college. All of a sudden, now you're working with some kid that jumped sixteen foot in high school. Okay, you made him a seventeen A guy, eighteen footer, whatever. That's great. Don't even that's great. Improvements a plus. Yeah. But how many guys you see that have? I'm the best coach in the world because I got a, the only eighteen footer in the in the NCAA this season or whatever or whatever have you. And it's like okay. You got a stud athlete that you happen to teach, you know, maybe you had a really good strength conditioning coach. Or, oh, you taught him to, you know, be, make a step a little bit out. And- okay, well, right. I mean, you're, you're discussing something where it's like, look, that kid may have jumped 16, 17 feet in high school or a girl jumped maybe 13, 14 feet in high school. And now they're at a school where, one, they have access to equipment. They have access, like, to the poles that they need. They have access to facilities like an indoor pole vault pit that they didn't have before. So they have more months of training. Obviously, there's going to be improvement just off of that. And I think also, again, I'm not trying to bash anybody. Those coaches are knowledgeable. Yeah, right, but, right, right. But they're working with limited number of athletes, How many limited athletes? hours a week. How many athletes where, are they seeing a season? Yeah. Like, Four, five, six? Maybe ten. If they coach both the men and the women, yeah, maybe ten. Right. And, and look, I, I again, I, I keep popping Mike Lorick's name up. I really, honestly, I have so much respect for Mike. He's worked with so many athletes over the years. Thousands. The ideas in his head about what to do with what athlete. I mean, this guy, Mike could probably be in the back of the club facing away from the pit and hear someone take a jump and be like, this is what you got to do. Because yeah. he's heard it so often, you know. And it was funny because I was just talking to one of my athletes who's at a D1 institution. And she was saying how... You know, she had a discussion with a coach, an athlete um, who was running through a lot, and she basically brought up the point that the kid in high school was basically doing nothing, just jumping twice a week, no strength and conditioning, no running. Now he's in a college program where the strength and conditioning program is serious. They're doing sprints, they're doing lifting, and the kid's zapped. He's he's feeling central nervous system fatigue, and the coach is convinced that the kid has a mental block. Oh boy! And it's like, look, I'm not, I'm not even saying that might be a percentage of it. But you have some physical things that are going on, like central nervous system fatigue. But again, when you don't work with a high number of athletes, when your sample size is small, you can have a lot of confirmation bias. Yeah, you, you know what I mean. Don't get us wrong; it's really great when you can have some stud that can grip fifteen feet from four lefts. But odds are, if you have an athlete, I'm listen. I'm talking every coach out there, that, and on, on any level, if you have an athlete that's just you know has days and weeks and maybe months of just run-throughs, there's either some sort of weird technical flaw there where they're, they're, they don't know how to drop the pole properly 
or you're over gripping them or over training or over training them. And you need to understand that. I mean, my, my point that I was getting to earlier, which I think I kind of glossed over was when you have a lot of these college athletes, uh, college coaches that get these stud athletes and they turn out and they're still, they, these kids turn out successful. There's they the coaches themselves get a lot of glory for this when it's like, really, but are you really that good of a coach? How many athletes are you seeing? Not that many. So how much can you possibly know? I mean, like, are you really a master of your art of your sport? By only seeing ten up to ten athletes and, a year, like and and again, don't get me wrong. I think there's a lot of college coaches out there that are awesome. Yeah, that right, do a great right. job. I mean, there there's coaches that I know even at the Division three level that I'm like, wow, how underappreciated. They do a great job, you know. Um, but at the same time, yes, you're right. There's a lot of these, and some of these guys are also like volunteer coaches. They do it on the side. They only right. see the athletes once or twice a week. They have no involvement with the strength and conditioning. So, it, you know, it to me, it's like it's really interesting. Like, you know, again, comparing us to CrossFit, CrossFit is done almost on a more professional level than track and field, and we've been around a lot longer than CrossFit. Hundred percent, hundred percent. But the thing is, because at CrossFit gyms, there's money on the line. There, there's incentive, right? If you do a good job, you provide a good service, you're going to have more clients. The more clients you get, the better your gym gets, and the better service you can provide, the more clients you get, right? You, you know, it's like there's a direct correlation there. Oh, yeah. You know, and the better your guys do at CrossFit Nationals, the better your gym is viewed. Because the better athletes you're going right, to get there. Right, right. So it's like everything grows off of that, you know? And unfortunately, in track and field, a lot of times, it's like, look, the the good athletes are just kind of passed around to these certain institutions. And, and unfortunately it doesn't even matter who's the coach there. I I mean like a school like Clemson, for example, I remember when Mario Wilson was coaching there, who's a great, great pole vault coach. He does such an amazing job with the jumps. Um, he's now at UVA and he's doing a great job there. Um, he was there. That was an awesome, I think place for, for pole vaulters to go was Clemson. But then he left and then it's like, so the years that Mario hasn't been there before and now since is it as good a place? I don't know. But it's Clemson. It's a big D1 school. They're in a big conference. Yeah. So they're recruiting the best. You know. And again, I don't know the coach there currently. Um, maybe he or she does a great job. I'm just saying it's like that they still are going to get athletes just based off of the name. And whereas like a CrossFit gym is only successful if they're actually doing a great job. Yeah. You know. And so I, I think a lot of people don't realize this stuff. You know. Um, it... it Again, this is why we really need to talk about industry standards and professionalism. And, and to go back to your point, um, I know that we've uh, kind of escaped it for a few minutes now. That's right. You talked about prize money. If we had this kind of national system with with regionals and semifinals and all that kind of stuff. And here, again, I don't know what's going to happen going down the road. Uh, I'm certainly not in charge of anything. I'm just happy enough to be able to chime in and maybe give my opinion on some of these things to people that – will ultimately be making decisions on this stuff. But I think if you have a regional system, you know, I think you just give out prize money to the open division and the, the best athlete from each region will get, get prize money. You, you so think, I don't think you'll have like, like let's say a novice pit that gets okay. prize money. I don't, I don't think you do that. I think that's a know? very important clarification that you just made. Yeah. The other thing that I would say though is like if you look at powerlifting and again, I – I was at the – I was in Ohio for the Stronger Business Summit um, seminar and Dave Tate was telling me there's not a lot of money in powerlifting. There are some meets that have prize money and such, but there's not a lot of money in powerlifting either. It's, it's really small. Um, but I know something I did 
this summer at Pobo Club Championships, I charged the spectators. I charged the spectators $10, and all the spectator money went to prize the money. top male and female um, for prize money. So that's one way to fund the prize money where it won't hurt the meat, and you can still you know, use the registration money to pay for the meat, pay for the people who work for it, and so on and so forth. That, that still boggles the mind to me. I've been to high school football games where I've got charged 5 or $10 right. to get in. I've, I think for the, ex- the one exception was Icon. I think I went to uh, attract me to Icon Stadium, and then I don't remember if it, I think I think they charge a spectator fee. But besides that, right, and that was a professional meet. You yeah, probably went yeah to I think I might want a dining league meet. I don't think I've ever been to a track meet, high school or college or open, where, where you they charge a spectator fee. Yeah, and and I think they really should. You know, I think look, we literally in our sport, we don't we we feel bad, but it's like the spectators will be more involved if they have to pay. You know what I mean? Yeah. And we could provide more services for the spectators. Like at this summer, like we had a DJ, you were announcing, uh, we had some food, we have, we had a clothing line that was for sale. You know, it was really a fun atmosphere and I think everybody enjoyed themselves. And we had a lot more people stay till the very end than a normal meet. Right. And and I tell you what, if you, if you, if you start on the, you know, like, I had a really good thought and I lost it. If you start on these lower levels charging a $5 spectator fee, and I know right now as people listening, they're saying, oh, well, I'm going to be a spectator. I don't want to spend 5 bucks or to track me and I want my family there. Listen, if you have to go to your, your, your son's or your daughter's high school track meet and spend 5 bucks, guess what? Your odds are most of the time, the majority is not going to bail on their child performing their sport. They're going to pay. They're going to pay that 5 but probably 5 bucks, right? And then – they're going to get used to it and accustomed to it. And then when they go to their college meets, they're going to be okay. And I'm sorry, this is me talking as the businessman, not as the pole vaulter. Then they're going to be comfortable in college paying their $10, $15 entry fee. And then guess what? Then it just becomes the norm. And when that becomes the norm, then you have bigger purses for competitions for, 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 for the best competitor, even top three at a certain, at a certain point. Well, here, here's the thing. Also, you pay that spectator fee. Let's say it's five, 10, starts to get 15, 20 dollars. You're going to stay till the end. You're going to enjoy right. yourself. I mean, listen, oh. you have to pay to go watch a movie. How many times? I mean, it's very rare that you leave a movie early. It's Just supposed. Once. It's got to be like terrible. Don't, don't mess yeah. with the Zohan. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> right. But like, yeah, I mean, yeah. you got to be at a really terrible movie. A lot of times you're going to sit it through because you're like, right. I paid for this. I'm going to enjoy myself. At least get the theater experience. How many, how many competitors? I'm talking, especially to the field event people. How many of you, obviously a lot of pole vaults, you've listed, how many people have you been at a competition competing or not competing and you've noticed, I'll say for this example, competing, you're maybe say you're, you're a more uh, apt at, an adept, adept athlete and you're there, you got to wait, you say you, had to, you passed a bunch of bars um, and by the time your bar coming, even your opening bar, let alone your final bar, hopefully they're not the same, no one's there anymore. Yeah. A lot of the thought of the, the parents of the other athletes that were jumping because you know every parent comes to see their little nine six pole vaulter they're gone they left and there's not that many people left at that bar how many people do you have rooting you on none you know how hard it is you know how hard it is to get up the adrenaline to jump a you know a pr bar when it's like you your coach and and no one maybe one of your yeah. teammates you gotta like struggle to find somebody to just put the crossbar up and, and so <laughs> here's the thing too you know going back to other sports and other examples other sport, like in a CrossFit gym, you know they're talking about the best people in the country all the time because they're trying to compete against the best. And so when people go out to watch, 
even their friends, local friend people, they stay to watch the top dog because they've heard about that guy and seen video of the incredible things he's, he or she has pulled off. Mm. So it's like, that's the thing. I think that like at my club, a lot of times I talk a lot about professional pole vultures so that the kids know who they are. I always, I, my kids know they're like, uh Oh, he just asked a, prof- a professional pole vultures name. Like I better watch that guy's video. Because they know I'm going to be like, dude, guys, you say you like pole vaulting. You want to be good at pole vaulting. Well, you got to know what the professionals are doing. Well, you, you bring up a great point. Promotion. How poor, poorly is our sport, the pole vaulting sport, promoted? Terribly. Yeah. And I, I find that, I mean, in the CrossFit community, I feel like a lot of they know the professionals. You know how many people I thought don't even know who the world record is? Oh, the, the French guy or whoever previously. Oh, the Russian. That's it. That's the best you get. Yeah. It's well, not okay. Well, you, you know what's funny? And, you know, again, I I get it. But I've heard this, for example, with like Valter Magazine, that what they discovered when they were doing those calendars, that the pros and college calendars didn't do well. Really? That the high school calendars did a lot so better. Well, family would buy it, I bet. Right. Yeah. So it's like you think about it. It's like you have 12 months on there. You have 12 different high school kids. So you have 12 potential regions buying calendars because, oh, I want to have Sally's calendar. So the aunt buys it, the mom buys it, the dad buys it, a couple friends, maybe the high school coach buys it, right? So a lot of people buy it. But the professional calendar, no one's buying it because nobody knows who the pros are. Just my mom. What, but, <laughs> but, think, but think about that. Like, What does that say about our sport and what people are following? Oh, yeah. Okay. And, and so it's like, are we really doing a good job of promoting the professionals? I mean, even us on this podcast right now, you know, hate to say it, I don't see anybody else breaking down professional jumps. No. I don't see, I don't hear anybody else really talking much about professionals. No. I mean, Sean Francis does a good job. I like his stuff. You know, he definitely is like putting the word out there. But other than that, I mean, like, you don't see anybody else posting stuff. You know, who, who do you think? All time, who do you think is the most influential person in pole vaulting ever? That's a that's a great great question. Um, I don't know, man. I mean, like you, you start to think about it. I have um, I have a name I, in my head. Okay, so you say yours first, and I'll I'll, I'll say my couple thoughts. I I think, and I, I want to get to a because that, that's a powerful question. You yeah. understand? That? Influential. I think what, I know. think one of the most influential people of all time, Alan Launder. If you don't know, he wrote Beginner to Bupka. He's done clubs and clinics all over the world in many different countries. I met the man personally. Great guy. He was very, very public on the forums um, until his passing. Uh, God rest his soul. Yeah. Um, did you have anyone else in mind? And I'm not talking well, about a really good coach. I, I'm talking right, about someone no, no, no. That right, right. People. No, I, I know what you're saying. I mean, I think you, you bring up a good point because, uh, I mean, I was going to talk about Coach uh, Bob Fraley. Okay. His son Doug coaches now at Tulane. Right, right, Bob right. was a longtime head coach at Fresno State. He coached his son Doug uh, to Division One national championships. He had a great squad at Fresno State, and he was the one that kind of spearheaded the Reno Pole Vault Summit, which brought in the Russians, right, right, brought right. in Allen. You know, yeah, that um, put him on a, a very public scale. Right, right. So, I mean, I think Bob Fraley is is definitely very, very influential. Um, but you bring up a good point with Alan. Like Alan actually did the footwork. Yeah, you like broke. There's down a re- so much. yeah. There's a reason that Alan was so well known, and this was really at 
early stages of the internet. I mean, you're talking about early right. 2000s where, yes, he got on the message board at Pole Vault Power. He would, he would constantly be on there commenting. Right. He published his book. And then he did the legwork. He did all those camps and clinics throughout America. And this is a guy who lives in Australia, guys. He had a limp, he would too. Fly, he would him. fly out to America and then fly all over America doing all these camps and clinics, spreading the word, doing doing the, the legwork. And a lot of people just aren't doing that. So, so okay. So I would say that we have clarified maybe two of the most influential people in the public community of all time. Now, currently modern Right now. Like today. Today. I I personally think Sean Francis. I think Sean Francis, he has that incredible incredible vlog. And he has an Instagram page. And all around great. I've met him, uh, I think at least once. Great guy. I've talked to him numerous times. Nice guy. And I think he generally does, with all his heart, as much as he can for the pole vault community. You know how many Instagram followers he has? I don't. It's like I, I'm gonna I'm gonna check myself just so I don't you know talk talk poorly, but I want to say it's like twelve hundred. Sean Dangerhoot has eighteen hundred and fifty eight followers on Instagram. Do you know what the say average like CrossFit regional qualifier has? I don't know about regional. I wouldn't be able to tell you. I'm going to say but, it's, it's some. It's at like minimum. You're talking ten thousand, and then for if you're a stud, if you're making to the CrossFit final, you're have you're two hundred fifty thousand Instagram followers. That is such a, a, a larger interaction you're having with people, even on YouTube. Which I, I would say Sean Francis is more popular for um, his YouTube channel than he is for his Instagram posts. Um, I think he only has, tw- what, he 2, has two hundred two twenty seven hundred twenty seven hundred. His own Sean Francis is like over 4,000. Um, so yeah, no, I look, I, I get what you're saying. And I think, I think that goes to show one, how small of a community we are. Yeah. You know, I think though, also it shows you that people are not putting out enough content. hundred percent. You know, because again, going back to the whole like industry standard, you know, I think everybody loves to put out a cool pole vault pick. Yeah. Everybody loves to just post their jump. Um, but who's giving details on that? I I would listen, I I don't want to, I'm not allowed to toot my own horn here, but I genuinely believe, and I could be wrong, but I genuinely believe that for a while back in, you know, 2008, 2009, I personally believe I set the standard on YouTube at least for posting information on jumps. Now, we're just talking about jumps. We're not talking about training and other stuff like that. Though I think I did have a few training videos. No one does that anymore. And recently, I think a thread opened up on Facebook where a couple, you know, grow, adult pol- adult coaches with a lot of – I say adult because I just mean like they have a lot of experience, professional experience as, as club coaches and college coaches. A lot of them mentioned they don't really like to post a lot of their – a lot of their specifics of their training, whether it's technique or lifting or anything. And I think one one gentleman in particular said, oh, I, I don't like to deal – essentially he said, I don't like to deal with the haters. Yo, you need to deal with that and put your information, your knowledge out there publicly. Well, you know, and look, I'm, I see a couple of people doing some stuff. Um, I know even – Yeah, but still, uh, I saw even like Nick Homan today. He actually gave a shout out. He tagged uh, the real Apex Vaulting on his Instagram post, and he posted on Facebook as well. And 
posted some jumps and a little bit of his workout and kind of described this whole week of training, which I thought was really cool for people to kind of get some insight on, on what Nick does through his training week. Um, I also have seen Trey Oates post a little bit mm-hmm. of who I visited with over the summer. So that's cool. Um, I just think it's something that as, as a community, we have to be a little bit more proactive, you know? Um, and look, I've gotten great, great feedback from some people who have listened to the podcast who are thankful that we're putting this information out there. You know, um, it's just, there's not enough, enough out there. And I don't know. I don't know if people are scared that someone's going to find out their secret and beat them. (laughs) I I mean, which look, I'm just going to say, it. you know what a lot of you have as a secret like most of the pros, your studs. Yeah, your you know athletes. I, mean? I, I remember, this is a story I'm going to say because it doesn't matter now. Um, I remember early in Jen Schur's career, I think she was st- still Jen Staczynski at this point. Yeah. Uh, her and Rick weren't married yet. She, her PR was like 15-1 at the time probably. She had just won maybe her first or second USA indoor title. And um, I was talking to another coach who, who was talking to Rick and the coach said, listen, I'm going to tell you a secret Bronco. Don't tell anybody. Jen is jumping on 15 foot poles. What? And yeah, I mean like I, I was like, okay, like I won't tell anybody. And I'm like, in my mind, I was like, yeah. And what? Like I can't even get my high school boy on a 15 foot pole right now. What do you think I'm a, Slap a 15 foot pole into my high school girl's hands who jumps 10 six. Like, not for nothing. That, you know how many high school coaches do that? Ah, uh, yo, Timmy, Timmy, Bob jumps 17 feet on this pole. Here you go. I'm sure, but, but you get my point. I oh, mean, it's yeah. like, you're not just going to take a 15 foot pole and throw it into a girl's hands. If they can't do it, they can't do it. You know what I mean? So it's like, that's all well and good that we're keeping this as a secret that Jen is on 15 foot poles at the time, but it's like, I don't really think that matters. Right. You know what I mean? I think, look, at the end of the day, she's going to jump what she jumps, and people are going to chase that number and try to jump that bar however They're going to do it their own way. It. I mean, look, exactly. at, look at look at Yavarsi Silva. She jumped 16 feet. And I would say she jumped 15, 6 or, or higher more consistently than Genesis, especially in the last two, two or three years. Sure. On what, a 13, 7? No, pole? get out of here. I Dude, that. Well, I think the first time You're she – Maybe it's four seven pole. I'm out of the game. I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen. I'm out but, of the game. But, so no, I, I, I know for a fact that Katarina Stefaniti and Sandy Morris have jumped 16 plus on 14, 14 sevens. sevens, right? So there you go. I mean, yeah. they're, they're already on six inches less pole than, than Jen, Jen Schur. But that's what I think is funny. Like, there's funny things that people think are secrets in the pole vault world. You know what I mean? Like, someone will walk up to you and like, listen, I figured out this secret. Don't tell me. There's anybody. no, listen, ladies and gentlemen, there's no secrets. All the information in the pole vault community is out there. It's just a matter of what you adhere by. You have to by. sift through yeah. and find it. But, but no, I mean, like, and, and here's the thing even training secrets, right? Like, training secrets, like, listen. And it, it's like the pole vault You just have to look outside of the pole vault yeah, community like, and find all the training it's secrets. It's like the pole vault community is like five or 10 years behind. Like, all the yeah. training secrets in the pole vault community can be found readily in the powerlifting community. Yeah. Yeah, you're like, hey, guys, listen, I heard about this thing. It's called box jumps. We should try it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, I, I mean, look, that that's the thing. I, I just I, I just think, you know, we think of things as secrets, but, like, it's not a secret. Just put your stuff out there. It'll be fine. Yeah. Let, let me you tell you. Ta- like, like, like Renault posting his 14.9 from two left. Yeah. I don't think people now are like, oh, that's how we got to do it. 
Johnny, I know your PR is only 13, but let's jump 14-9 from a 2 and you'll beat Renault. Let's go down from a 5 to a 2. Yeah. You know, so it's like that's not going to change. But here's the other thing. And here's really the scary thought, Joe. Here's the scary thought. Just drop it. Drop the bomb. Some people, maybe they don't want to let their secrets out. You know what I think the other thing is? If you're really not confident in what you do, you're scared of being figured out. Well, not even. And I think that's the big thing. It's like if you're if you're not really sure if what you're of of what you're doing or if what you're doing is right, that's why you don't post or you don't have a clear enough understanding of what you're doing. That's why I think people don't post. I I agree with that because I definitely have seen oh that that kid jumped really good. How did you do it? Well, we did this. That athlete doesn't do anything remotely like that. I won't name drop any names, but I would say one, another step further. How many af- how many coaches don't post their stuff because they know. People are going to – I won't say ridicule. Anyone could be ridiculed. Scott Kendricks, who I think is amazing coach, amazing dad, doing an incredible job of Sam. I'm sure he's ridiculed. I know he always every once in a while – after after Sam ends the season, he always has to post. Uh, you know, I know every all the, everyone said that we had a grip higher, but we did it without that grip. But but I digress. Um, but how many of these coaches don't post because they know it's crazy? Like if you have that coach, it's like – I hate to do this, but – well, you know, uh, what we did this year is we uh, we filled the pole full of helium, make it nice and light. And that's how we got little Timmy to jump uh, 14 feet. Like, it's just so, there's some ridiculous stuff going on out there yeah. in the pole bowl community. I, yeah, I mean, you know, again, that that's what I think is weird is like, I think that there are a lot of people that just, you know, they either work with talented athletes or they are very talented athletes. And they don't have a full understanding of what they're doing. I mean, no. I, I've spoken to people who have jumped on the world stage and you know they don't they don't understand like max effort lifting they don't know what a conjugate system is they don't know what dynamic effort is you know it really makes you question even how much they actually understand about their own vaulting never mind training you know what i mean and so i mean that that speaks volumes about the information that's out there you know so i look i think just to wrap this up. This is now officially the longest podcast we've done. It's almost two hours. Um, but going back to the original thought on this podcast, what is the industry standard? You know, we have to start thinking about this as a group. What is the industry standard? What are our expectations level for technique? What's, what is this? What is a must? What is a no? You know what I mean? Like I'm going to just use a high pole carry because I think most people should agree. A high pole carry with the bottom arm, the wrist underneath the hand, elbow underneath the wrist, you know, nice extension uh, at takeoff with the arms fully extended, plenty of space at takeoff. That's a must, right? I don't think anybody wants the hands in at takeoff. Or anybody, I don't think anybody really thinks it's desirable to be flat at takeoff. If they do, like, listen, if that's what you do, that's fine. You got to get by, right? You're a 19 foot vaulter, that's how you jump. Great. But don't tell me you would teach a young person who's just starting out to not jump up. Yeah. Don't right. tell me you would teach a young person to be flat, right? So there's got to be industry standard from a technical standpoint, from a training standpoint. And listen, don't tell me what the highest vaulter in your area does for training. That's not important. Why don't you tell me what the best athletes, period, regardless of sport, do in the world for training? That's more important. That's got to be the industry standard. And then if you run a club, you know, if you're a top athlete, 
Look at some other people outside of our sport. What should be our industry standard? Be more engaging. Provide more content. Provide a better service. You know? Just to be a little more specific as we wrap this up, if you're a pole vaulter or a coach and you're posting videos or pictures on whether it's Facebook or YouTube or Instagram, whatever, please post statistics, post numbers. That is how you start to get the basis for these industry standards which we're striving to to get yeah. and learn and understand. Whether you're squatting or you're deadlifting or you're, you're pole vaulting. Or, tell or us, how efficient your jump is yeah. from a short run, tell, long run. Tell us the pole. Tell us the grip. Tell us what your doubles or that bungee's at. Tell us what you're squatting. Listen, we want to know. Tell us your body weight. Listen, Jeff Coover, don't be worried. If you tell if you tell us what you grip and where you run from, Joe Oliveri is not going to be able to handle that grip. <laughs> I'm just telling you. like He's not getting you. Unless you're capping a 1280, then I'll be, I'll be right there. Um, hey, hope everybody enjoyed this podcast. Uh, I feel like we talked about so many different topics. A lot of topics. Uh, but but this was a blast. Um, Joe, thanks for doing another podcast. Thanks for um, having me. Yep. Good to be back. See you next time, everybody. Peace out.